0: Good afternoon. This is uh, January the 28th, 2007. Thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be a bit of an open format show. I've only got one or two uh, topics that I would like to talk about, which of course can be entirely overshadowed by the requests or requirements of the listeners. So thank you so much for joining us. We haven't chatted about politics and in particular war for a little while. So I'm going to read a short uh, excerpt from an article. This is from the uh, February 5th, 2007 issue of McLean's, which is an Obama fest and also has a very interesting description from a soldier who has sought asylum in Canada to avoid being redeployed back to uh, Iraq. And uh, briefly, this is a a fairly uneducated young gentleman from the South, as of course so many of the soldiers are. And I'm fine, thanks. And um, he was told on joining up, he has two kids, and he wanted uh, healthcare and he wanted some benefits. And he was told when he signed up that he was uh, going not not going to see combat. In fact, he was so told he was not going to be deployed outside of the United States. So he says, we don't know. There's no record, but I believe this is fairly common practice within the U.S. military, as is the case with all militaries. It surprises me that people can believe that a group of individuals can go around and murder uh, hundreds of thousands of foreigners, but are somehow above lying. I'm not sure where that stands in the hierarchy of values, but I'm fairly sure I would rank murder much worse than lying. So somebody who's willing to go and murder or sanction or participate in that murder at whatever level probably is not above uh, lying to you to get you to join. But I wanted to give a bit of a sort of grunt's eye view of the war, so I'm going to read a little bit from his uh, book. He's written a book, uh, let me just see, it's called The Deserter's Tale, and uh, his status at the moment in Canada, he's applied for refugee status, um, for asylum, but this asylum has been denied because he was considered to have volunteered, and I've done a podcast and an article on this, so I'm not going to go any further into that other than to say it's not particularly volunteering. If your opportunities are diminished by other state policies, the destruction of manufacturing and the blue-collar lifestyle is uh, certainly part of that. Another fairly important part of all of that is that you are bribed uh, to go, you're lied to, uh, and um, the idea that some uneducated guy in his early 20s can make sophisticated decisions about the role of violence, the nature of his life, and especially after spending uh, so much time receiving state propaganda in schools – uh, free will, while still an absolute, does get blunted quite a bit through propaganda, as those who produce propaganda know very well. So I just wanted to read a little bit about his experience of life on the ground. So this is a grunt, uh, a private first class, I think. He says, I was scared out of my wits that first day at Ramadi. Our own Air Force had just finished bombing these people But as soon as we got out of our vehicles, we began patrolling their streets on foot. With nearly 100 pounds of weaponry, equipment, and clothing on my back, I was about as mobile as a cow. It was just my platoon, 20 guys walking single file through the streets, full of Iraqis. I could not stop thinking that anywhere at any time, some half-starved sniper on a roof could have taken me out in no time flat. Iraqi kids surrounded me in swarms, hand out. Hands out, asking for water and food. I kept hearing the last words my wife Brandy said to me before I flew out. Don't you let those terrorists near you, Josh. Even if they are kids, get them before they get you. I was awakened at 3 a.m. that first night and told to get my ass up quickly because in one hour we were going to raid a house full of terrorists. Captain Condi and some sergeants showed me and my squad mates a satellite photo of a house and a drawing of the layout of the inside. Our assignment was to blow off the door, burst into the house, raid it fast, and raid it good. Looking for contraband, caches of weapons, signs of terrorists or terrorist activity, then rounding up the men and getting out damn fast. The longer we stayed in any one location, the longer somebody would have to put us in the sights of a rocket-propelled grenade or lob mortars at us. I had no idea what to expect. Would I charge through the door only to be blown to bits by a grenade? Would somebody with an AK-47 knock my Oklahoma ass right back out that door? Would some six-year-old terrorist with two days of gun training be waiting to put me in his crosshairs? The minutes ticked on, and I wanted the hour to speed forward so we could get on with it. One or two guys did push-ups to pump themselves up. I borrowed Mason's portable CD player and bombed out my eardrums to the beat of Ozzy Osbourne. It got me going. High and ready for action, I checked my watch, wished it would accelerate, and stuck some dip Copenhagen bourbon flavor behind my lip. You can't manage a cigarette when you've got an M249 automatic weapon on your arm. So dip was best. Makes your mouth black as sin and rots the roots right out of your gums. But dip, dip was my nicotine hit of choice before going into that raid. I committed our instructions to memory. I knew the angles of the house, what door I would help blow down, how many floors were in that house, and who would do what when we busted inside. I would be the third in the door, which means I was the second most likely to get shot if anyone had a mind to take us down, and I'd head to the left. Always, for every raid, I'd be third in, heading left. i gripped grip my M249. Yes, it could belt out 2,000 rounds a minute, but only in theory. You couldn't really hold your finger down that long. When you were blazing away like that, the bullets turned the barrel as hot as Hades, and if you held your finger down too long, it would warp the barrel. It took 30 seconds for Jones and me to put the charge of C4 plastic explosives on the door. Then we dashed around to the side of the house so we wouldn't blow ourselves up. You'd be fried meat if you went anywhere near the explosion. I set off the blast, and then the six of us charged in. Jones went first. That skinny red-haired Ohio boy was always hot to trot. With Jones leading the way, we burst into the house, armed to the hilt. Kevlar helmets, flak jackets, machine guns, combat boots, the whole nine yards. I'd never been inside an Iraqi's house before. We we charged through a kitchen. I had been told by squad leader Padilla to check out everything, so I even opened the fridge. Perhaps I thought I'd I'd find guns or grenades hidden inside. No such luck. All I saw in the fridge was a bit of food. In the freezer, I found big slabs of meat uncovered, no wrapping, no plastic, frozen just like that. We ran into a living room with long couches, one along each wall. In this room, with the couches, we found two children, a teenager and, uh, and a woman. One looked like a teenager, the other was perhaps in his early 20s. Brothers. We hollered and cussed. I spat dip on the floor and screamed along with the other soldiers at the top of my lungs. I knew they didn't understand, but I hollered anyway. Get down, I shouted. Get the fuck down. Shut the fuck up. They didn't know what get down meant, so we knocked the two brothers to the floor, face down. We put our knees on their backs, pulled their hands behind them, and faster than you can bat an eye, we zip-cuffed them. Zip cuffs that are plastic handcuffs that lock on tight. They must have bit something fierce into these young men's skin. There was no key, nothing. The only way to get them off was to slice them with cutters. We pushed the brothers outside where 12 other soldiers from our platoon were waiting. The Iraqi brothers were taking it away to an American detention facility for interrogation. interrogation. I, I don't know what it was called. I, I, don't, I don't know where it was. All I know is that we sent away every man, pretty well every male over five feet tall that we found in our house raids, and I never saw one of them return to the neighborhoods we patrolled regularly. Inside, we kept on ransacking the house. The more obvious it became that we would find no weapons or contraband, the more we kicked the stuffing out of the house. We knocked over dressers, sliced into mattresses with knives, kicked our way through doors, raiding the three bedrooms on the second floor, then raced up to the third floor. We turned over everything we could and broke furniture at random, searching for contraband weapons, Sorry, searching for contraband, weapons, proof of terrorist activity, or signs of weapons of mass destruction. We found nothing but a CD. Soldiers initially said it showed proof of terrorist activity, but it turned out to have been, uh, to have nothing on it but a bunch of speeches by Saddam Hussein. Once we had everybody outside the house and had done our initial job of ransacking, another squad took over inside. They kept raising hell in there breaking and turning over more furniture, looking for weapons that we might have missed. Outside, under a carport, I was assigned to watch the women and children. We weren't arresting them, but we weren't allowing them to go anywhere either. The family members couldn't go back inside, and they couldn't wander off into the neighborhood. They had to stay right there while we tore the hell out of their house. A girl in the family, a teenager, started staring at me. I tried to ignore her. Then she began speaking to me. Inside, when we'd been screaming at her and the others, I'd assumed that nobody spoke a word of English, but this young girl spoke to me in English, and her eyes bored holes right through me. She was skin and bone, not even a 100 pounds, not yet a full-grown woman, but something about her seemed powerful and and disturbing. I, I feared that girl, and I wanted to get away from her as fast as I could, but it was my job to stay right there and make sure she didn't move. I had my weapon ready, She was wearing a blue nightgown and had a white scarf covering her hair. She had no veil, so I could see her face perfectly. Her eyes were coal black and full of hatred. In English, she asked me, where are you taking my brothers? I don't know, miss, I said. Why are you taking them away? I'm afraid I can't say. When are you bringing them back? Couldn't tell you that either. Why are you doing this to us? I I couldn't answer that. I hoped she would not raise a fuss. I didn't want her to start screaming, which would attack the attention of my squad mates. One or two, I feared, would be more than happy to use a rifle butt to knock out her teeth. I hadn't been in Iraq more than 24 hours, and already I was having strange feelings. First, I was vulnerable, and I didn't like it. Even with all these soldiers and all this equipment, I knew that any time, anywhere, any Iraqi with a gun, a wall to hide behind, and one decent eye could pick me off faster than a hawk nabs a mouse. Secondly, With hardly one foot into the war, I was also uneasy about what we were doing there. Something was amiss. We hadn't found anything in this girl's house. We busted it up pretty well in 30 minutes, taken away all her brothers. Inside, another squad was still ransacking the house. I didn't enjoy being stuck guarding this girl under the carport in the cool April air before dawn in Ramadi. Her question haunted me, and I didn't like not being able to answer them even to myself. So this guy says that he took part in more than 200 raids, never found one indication of weapons or any indications of of terrorism. There was... um, uh, They would regularly beat up, and and by beat up, like break the teeth out of the mouth of the civilians, especially the women. There were uh, gang rapes. Uh, There was all of the nightmarishness that exists in in war. Uh, as some people have said, there's no such thing as a war crime because war itself is a crime. But this is entirely to be expected. This is the hell that is unleashed when men go into um, a country fully armed with a relatively disarmed population and pretty much are let loose at will. There's no civil restraint. There's no uh, and, of course, the people who are attracted to this kind of life aren't exactly people who are the best people in the world, as far as ethics go. I mean, they usually have pretty rough upbringings and so on. But what I would like to say is that this gentleman, this guy, Joshua Key, his name is 28 now, um, he's quite a hero in a lot of ways, I would say. He has taken himself out of the equation And, of course, if there were more deserters, there would be no American participation. There would still be brutality in Iraq. It's a primitive country. There are lots of evil people around. But we don't have any control over that, the history and the culture of a country. We only really have control over our own actions and behaviors relative to our fellow man. And this uh, guy is quite a hero. And, of course, he's terrified of being shipped back to the U.S., where he faces a maximum of five years for desertion in a pretty unpleasant prison, I would say. But this guy's a bit of a hero, I would say. He's quite a bit of a hero um, in terms of turning his back on this kind of life uh, and and of, of taking a stand relative to the uh, murderous crimes that he was charged with or ordered to commit uh, in Iraq. This is not going to make the world safer. Blood begets blood. Violence begets violence. If you combine... This kind of stuff, which is the overt violence that the state practices overseas, with the stuff like the foreign aid that goes to dictatorships, with the stuff like the arms sales that occur, hundreds of billions of dollars a year around the world, arms that will last for generations, uh, landmines, uh, aircraft, uh, machine guns, um, uh, just about everything, scuds, rocket-propelled grenades, just about anything that you can imagine gets sold by Uh, The government um, and the U.S. government accounts for almost half of the world's sales. Second is um, England. Uh, Third is um, Russia. America sells 17 times more arms in the international market than China does. So this is just something to be aware of, that the world is a dangerous place, and that's not why we need governments. The world is a dangerous place because we have governments. And the kinds of moral courage that people like men like this are, putting forward, I can only hope it's going to spread. And it's not like he himself is a philosopher who is going to be able to change the world, but I still would like to sort of give him some praise in terms of his bravery if the, uh, if other soldiers, if policemen and so on did this kind of stuff, refused to participate in the horrendous crimes that are committed in the name of state and self-protection and security in the homeland, then this world would be a far safer and less macabre and murderous place. So I just wanted to point that out. I haven't read the whole book. Um, I don't know that I want to because um, I'm pretty sure that it's going to be just a sequence of horrendous crimes which do not surprise me and do not shock me, but nonetheless I do not particularly want to immerse myself in because this is what war does to the human soul. There is no immunity in geography. There is no such thing as an American soul. There is no such thing as a Western or British soul. When you put any human being, as Milgram's experiments have pretty much uh, proven fairly conclusively and as the experience of thousands of years of human history has proven fairly substantially, uh, human beings all abuse power. Human beings, when given guns and orders, will all commit unbelievable atrocities There is nobody who is immune. There is no bad soldiers over in Iraq and then good soldiers in America or in England or in the other countries in the Coalition of the Willing. The power of violence and the power of monopolistic violence, particularly against a largely disarmed population where resistance is random but never concentrated, right? I mean, the insurgency, as we know, lasts an average of 11 years. This is going to go on and on. No matter what is claimed in terms of victory or loss, uh, The Middle East is a swamp wherein many Western lives have been lost due to the desire for uh, conquering for the sake of oil or for the sake of empire or for the sake of whatever. War profiteering, of course, is the largest one of these sorts of um, motivators. But there is no noble military human being. There is nobody who has this power of life and death who can uh, blow off the doors of a house, come storming in, smash, scream, uh, handcuff, Uh, potentially rape, drag off for interrogation, torture, and possibly murder and humiliation to Abu Ghraib or places like that. There is no human being who has this power who can not be corrupted and turned into a, a mere shadow of any kind of virtuous soul. All human beings will be corrupted. I would be, you would be, all human beings would be corrupted by this power. There is no human being who can handle the power of monopolistic and oligarchical violence and control and orders. So, We should not be shocked at the atrocities that are occurring. War itself is the ultimate atrocity. We should not imagine that there are good sides and bad sides in a war. And I think to the degree we we can't expect soldiers to risk jail time and and ostracism and uh, alienation from their homeland uh, because that's unrealistic. This is not what they do. This is a news story because it's exceptional. The vast majority of people in the military just say, okay, well, you tell me who to kill and I'll go kill them, and like good capos. We can't expect people uh, to do this. This is the job of philosophers and thinkers to point out these atrocities and to point out the inevitability and the dehumanization of war and what, of course, it does to the soul of the homeland, right? War, atrocity, violence, uh, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis murdered, half a million every month fleeing the country. What it is doing to the souls of those at home is also not to be underestimated. It's not as bad, of course, as what the war is doing to those who are directly participating in it, but in England and in America, what war is doing to the souls of those who are at home who know that their labor is being stolen from them through taxes to pay for these uh, murderers and these rapists to go on a killing spree throughout the Middle East, which is, uh, there's no good place to have a killing spree, but in um, the land of fundamentalist Muslims and thousands of years of religious warfare, um, that wouldn't be anybody's first choice about where to go and start sticking sticks into hornets' nests. So... There is nobody who can do this uh, with impunity and the defenses that we have to put on domestically that we can't speak openly about the war and the atrocities and to some degree the participation that those of us who are paying taxes I'm Canadian, um, not by birth but by naturalization my taxes are going to do the same sorts of things over in Afghanistan but this participation that we feel, the silence that we feel in discussing these kinds of things uh, corrupts the civilized life of the homeland as well as the brutalizes the soldiers at the front so whatever you can do to speak out against the war um, I think it is to your eternal credit to do so so thank you so much for listening uh, let me just uh, open this up if we have any questions I would be more than happy to, uh, to hear them so let's just have a look here do 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 alright So uh, I'm going to just have a look and see if there's anybody who's waiting to speak. If you would like to uh, speak or question or comment about the topic that we've been talking about or any other topic that you like, uh, please feel free to do so. Uh, That was sort of the major issue that I wanted to speak about at the beginning to get the show off to a nice, positive, and bubbly start. So if you had sort of questions about the shows this week, we had some very interesting ones, at least I think, on libertarianism and on um, immigration and other topics. And we had a very interesting, though rather chilly, Ask a Therapist last night when we went on a Sub-Zero walk. Uh, if you have a questions, um, I singing start naked. That's not really a question, although if you had a webcam, it would be fa- fascinating, I think. But uh, if you have uh, uh, questions or comments about anything that was talked about on the show this week, or questions or comments in general, feel free to, uh, <laughs> to ask away. I'm sorry, I'm going to have a little bit of a shot here. I'm not much of a drinker, but my throat's a little raw, so. We're on video. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm the worst drinker in the world. I probably will be slurring and upside down by the end of the show, because um, I'm a very, very cheap drunk. All right. Uh, Somebody has commented, you have to give yourself over to power in order to wield it. Giving yourself over to it is to succumb to corruption. Well, I mean, I think that's entirely true. The one thing that's always amazed me, since we're still waiting for people... Oh, we do have somebody? Okay. Fantastico. Even better than me rambling on and on. Well, maybe. All right. Uh, Nate, I think you're on. Or are you? Anita? I think you're on. I'm on? Yes.
1: Oh, there it goes. I was looking at the uh, thingy.
0: Uh, I have two unrelated questions. Um, both Wait, questions. Do you mean unrelated related- to the topic at hand or unrelated <laughs> to each other?
1: <laughs> both. <laughs> both. The first question is something I've been wondering for a while and and... That's in regards to children and having children, and I was wondering, you, we've talked about this before, um, about people having children, like in Podcast 600, people having children for to validate themselves or to live vicariously through them or to make them go through things that they didn't get to go through that they wanted to go through, and because it might be fun or because it might be, you know, a fun thing to do or may look... It's to satisfy their parents, or to conform to what other people think, or all those all those different things. But what what are the right ways? What what are the right reasons?
0: Closely, um, alcohol, and also if you need um, if you need labor, uh, and particularly if you need labor that involves small fingers, um, pickpocketing, um, opening locks. Uh, that kind of stuff, that can be very helpful. Also, if you run a rug weaving uh, company, those those little fingers can be very helpful. If you're selling to Nike, uh, this can be very, very helpful. So there are a lot uh, lawn mowing. Well, the problem with lawn mowing is that um, it can take a little bit of a while for the children to get old enough, plus it tends to be kind of visible, uh, so there's uh, going to be a bit more, uh, it's going to be a bit trickier to do that. So there, there definitely are garage floor painting. Human remote control. See, now, what's happening is we're learning a little bit more about some of our listeners' childhoods through this process. Well, do you want to take a shot at the right reasons to have children? No, no. To make your husband seem mature, briefly? <laughs> no? Nothing from you? All right. Well, I, you know, the the reason that I would say that uh, is, is a good reason to have children um, is that you wish to share your joy of existence with other human beings. I mean if you, if you love life, if you're happy I mean, not perpetually, there's always that "witch of a Monday morning, but if you're happy in general, and you know it, clap your hands. if you enjoy life and you want to, to teach and you want to learn, and you want to bring up children uh, to, be, to add to virtue to you know, not like some sort of virtue camp or anything like this, but if you want, um, uh, if you want, if, if that's something that would give you pleasure. Uh, bringing children into the world, teaching them about life, teaching them about happiness and virtue, and if they would bring joy to your life. It's not required. I mean, you don't have to have children to have a happy life, but I think that if you want to uh, bring uh, children into this world because you have a genuine love of life and you want to teach people about life and virtue and knowledge and you want to share your joy in knowledge, but I would say that Another good reason to have children is because you want to learn from them. Uh, Children uh, are amazing teachers. Um, They really are. I worked in a daycare for many years, and I talked to the mirror quite a bit. So uh, children are amazing teachers. They uh, have a very, very clear-eyed view of the world, uh, and this is, of course, why they tend to get brutalized so much. Children see things within the family. They see things within your own soul. They don't often have the vocabulary to speak about it, uh as clearly as as we'd like but what goes on in children's eyes in terms of what they can see about you is one of the reasons why people often get so aggressive towards children because children uh the, the sight of children cuts through a lot of, of fog uh, you know you you've always heard this kind of silly thing about children which is can be can be quite true that children might walk up to a fat person and say why are you so fat which is a reasonable question and of course the parents are going to stomp all over that uh, and uh, attack the child for being rude and so on. But, of course, it is a reasonable question. And that openness and curiosity that children have can be very liberating for those of, for anybody, really, but particularly for people who've gotten into a kind of habit and a kind of over-politeness. Children can be a real breath of fresh air, as far as that goes, in terms of uh, being open, uh, blunt, not necessarily rude. But, you know, in society, we can get pretty heavily layered against basic honesty. Uh, whenever you're honest towards someone... You tend to be perceived as rude, at least I know, that <laughs> I know that I do sometimes. So I think that if you want to learn from children and teach children and share in that kind of growth and in that kind of pleasure, uh, children can, uh, in my view, children are sort of naturally buoyant and positive and energetic, and it takes quite a lot of work to churn, turn children into uh, unpleasant um, teenagers and so on. Yeah, to children are absolutely natural philosophers. Um, I don't go quite as far as Rousseau, but I certainly do believe that children are natural philosophers. They're much closer to an uncluttered view of reality. They're much more, uh, they haven't been taught how to fool themselves out of consistency, integrity, and how to lie to themselves about the, the validity of the senses. And this is really the great danger for most people who have a lot of illusions or a lot of falsehoods in their lives, children represent a great danger. So uh, that is, uh, um, uh, that is uh, one of the reasons that uh, people end up becoming quite hostile. They think that the children are going to love them and the children are going to feed their egos and so on, And then the ch- that, but that's kind of narcissistic and selfish, and children see that very clearly and tend not to react to it and tend to be disobedient. Uh, the re- losing the respect of a child must be about the worst thing uh, in the world, and it's all too common in the world, and what happens is the children get aggressed against. So, uh, does that sort of that, make any sense? That that's the best answer I've ever heard before ever. So you're gonna see this woman again tonight? Oh, she's in Florida right now. I'm. I'm well, you I'm, can fly uh, to Florida. What what I would do? Um, what I just said. Bring a bring a tape of it, and put on a little Barry White in the background. And say, "Hey, baby, wanna share some joy." <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I have often been quite disappointed that people aren't using free-domain radio as make-out music. Um, certainly, <laughs> it works in our household. Uh, because especially I, Podcast I, 500. Yeah, especially Podcast 500, but pretty much any of them. Um, uh, so uh, this is something that, well, I mean, Christine and I will often put on a couple of podcasts and make-out, so uh, this is just something that's important. I'll stop here uh, before the hook comes off the side of the screen. <laughs> Because sometimes just one of me talking isn't enough. <laughs> it's a ménage à 1990. <laughs> All okay,
1: right. So another unrelated question. The other unrelated question is the... Uh, I've obviously been reading um, a bit of Ayn Rand, um, Fountainhead especially, and, and, mm. Mm. and I've noticed a lot of... Yes. Well, I'm not actually reading, reading, but... Listening, reading, <laughs> so uh, okay. That 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 still counts. Um, my uh, problem with it—I mean, not my problem with it—but the problem I keep noticing as a kind of a similarity between me and Dominique and Rourke is the the sort of loneliness of integrity, I guess, the, the inherent loneliness that that as as you start to start to adhere to principles the the there's very few people that that have any integrity and like right. the, the my some of my closest friends are examples of that those people they they're just I'm starting to see that in them, and it's just it's really upsetting because. <laughs> it takes a long time to make good friends and and it's kind of not, it's becoming less and less of a great feeling to hang around. Well, one of them, it's a lot more fun to hang around than the other, but the other is just so, so resistant to it and, and, and that he wants to, you know, say there's no such thing as this, or it's all just biological, or or things like that. And and true, some things are biological, and but then that's why we have reason and rationality, so or to, to oh. right, right, those are biological too. I didn't think of that. I could have made that point. <laughs>
0: You know, it's easy for me to have other people's arguments for them because it's just so – I'm, I'm not in there, so it's just easier, right? But, but yeah, I mean, uh, obviously what goes on within our minds are rationality. Uh, rationality is automatic and biological, and you can see this when children develop object constancy and, and learn how to – and children reason very early, especially when it comes to uh, the proportion of sizes, right? I mean, especially younger siblings, try giving them, you know, one atom less of ice cream, and you'll see all about rationality. Uh, so that's that's pretty much innate to human beings. It's a, it's an innate faculty, which is why it has to be so beaten out of us and corrupted uh, by sort of religion, family, and education. But but sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, mainly we've we've had arguments over the past not arguments but debates over the past couple of days about you know why why men are attracted to women and men, women are attracted to men, and you know I brought up Nathaniel Brandon's point about they're they're attracted to what. It may be an initial thing first to be attracted by looks, you know by the way a person looks and how the how the chemistry that goes on there and and but that's just the initial attraction and that that can disappear within an instant after talking to the person after for for five or ten minutes so um he acknowledged that that was true, but that 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 he says values has nothing to do with attraction and I'm like well if <laughs> if if you only value looks then of course you're going to be attracted so
0: <laughs> so attraction by itself innately is defined as as holding something in higher value whether that is you know nice rack or something like that as Christina said on our third date um but to be attracted to someone is automatically to value them in some... Even if it's shallow, it's, it, it, attraction is, is value in and of itself. So saying that value has nothing to do with attraction is like saying attraction has nothing to do with attraction. I mean, that's not even close to logical, right? This is just somebody who is frightened of what uh, this axiomatic premise is going to reveal about himself, right?
1: Right. He's very frightened of the word values he, or morality. He's, very, he's always objecting to that. and And when I bring... And today's we had lunch together, and and we, he was talking about the need for lists of uh, you know historically pro- uh, protected historical places. You know, like like I was like, well, why why do I need to be enslaved to protect these places? You know, why can't people just solve these problems on their own? Well, they're not that easily solved, but they're definitely not easily solved if I'm enslaved by them. He says, well, what about the 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 pyramids of Giza? I'm just like. Well, that's really funny because they were built with slavery and I'm being enslaved to protect the pyramid pyramids which were built through slavery. So it's like I, I'd rather not be enslaved and have the pyramids knocked down than you know, and turned into a shopping mall than
0: than be enslaved. Right. Well, so this this friend of yours believes that values have nothing to do with attraction, but he's attracted to historical buildings, right? Because he thinks they're more valuable.
1: Right, and I told him there's no value trons inside the building. Obviously, <laughs> uh, a a a building has, you know, no inherent value. There's, I mean, it's only as valuable as someone is willing to pay for it. So, how, okay, how so let me uh, let step- me
0: ask you a, a, t- a couple of tough questions, which you know don't mean anything other than I'm curious. Um, so, how long have you been friends with this this person? Can we can we give him a name? Can we call him Ralph? Uh, Mark,
1: you might know him as MGS on the boards. He, yeah, he hasn't posted in a while, but oh, good. Uh, Let's make it
0: personal. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> seven years. <laughs> seven okay, years. so seven years. And have you um, noticed that uh, this uh, person is um, uh, that that Mark is sort of anti-value? Have you noticed this for some time, or is this something more recent?
1: I've noticed this for some time.
0: And what is it that you value about Monk? Um,
1: he's extremely. He he offers a lot of insight elsewhere. He offers a lot of help. I mean, he's he's my editor for the two Rhodes articles that I, that I, wrote, and he's. He's the cl- he's, he's he's the closest to what.
0: <laughs> you know, he's like
1: one of those minarchist types that 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 never quite get over that hump, you know, it's just like I, I get a lot farther with people that are the complete opposite than I do with him sometimes. He, he can also, what is it that I value about Mark? He, he He's reasonable in some senses. In other ways, he's just not. So I, I don't, that's a very good question. I'll have to think about that for a while.
0: I'm just I won't put. You on, hand, but, um, well my, this is this is my suggestion uh, for, for what it's worth. I would stop talking with uh, Mark about values. I really would because without a doubt, the, the the direction that you're moving towards with this guy is that your friendship is going to blow up. I mean, that is as inevitable as the sun rising tomorrow if you continue to poke around in this area of values, core values, I'll I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. I've gone down this road a few times myself, more than a few. He's going to start to ego invest in his position, right? So he may have taken a position out of some personal philosophical or psychological tendency or preference or whatever. Maybe he wasn't hugely serious about it, but he's going to take this position that there's no such thing as values. I don't know what his position is, but it'd be something like that. Then what's going to happen is you're going to keep returning to to sort of stick a toothpick in this wound because you feel unsatisfied that he's taken this position. Now what's going to happen is he is going to begin to defend this position long past he believes in it, long past the time he believes in it. Wait, you lost your... Because it's going to become a point of pride for him. So once he has told you 500 times or 50 times that there's no such thing as values. How is he going to be able to back down without uh, losing face, without sort of whatever, whatever, right? So I think it's sort of important not to back people into corners in this way if you want to keep them as friends or change their minds or whatever. What I would do if I were you, and I'm not saying it's the easiest thing in the world, I'm not saying I'd do it easily, but what I would do if I were you, Nate, is you can best instruct by living well. So if you start to get what you want in your life, start to become happy, uh, and start to enrich your own existence and have better relationships and so on, then at some point, Mark may say, hey, you got a big pile of sugar over there. How did you get it? And then you might say, well, this is for me how the exercise of values, uh, objective rational values has worked out in my life. And so if you'd like to talk, if you want to know more about that, fantastic and so on. But... If you keep hammering him on an issue that you're diametrically opposed to, the friendship will absolutely explode. And that may not be the end of the world, because if this is not somebody who's going to change and you have opposing core values, then it's just perversity, and and, and not in a good way, it's just perversity to continue a, a relationship with somebody who has opposing and fundamental values to yourself. Now, if he's taking it up as a kind of position, then if you, like a sort of false self kind of position, if this is his way of being alternative or cool or different or whatever, if he's got some sort of uh, approach in that way, then if you stop poking at this uh, with the toothpick, this wound with the toothpick, and start to live a happier and more productive life yourself and interact with Mark in a way or in those topics or areas where you do exchange uh, mutual value, then at some point he may become curious about uh, your happiness uh, or your increased satisfaction in life, your peace of mind, or whatever, and then you can uh, you know, talk to him about these things. And I only say this not even so much because of philosophy, but because I have not had any particular success getting people who I know into therapy. Uh, although, and it's the most frustrating thing in the world, because you know that if they went into therapy, uh, they oh, well, I don't have the money. It's like, well... <laughs> Yeah, we don't have the money to, you know, to, to, uh, to go to get higher education sometimes. It's still a damn good investment because it pays off more than it costs in the long run, even if you just count happiness rather than money. But uh, it's very hard to get people to go into therapy, right? Especially with, you know, for me, because I had a very bad childhood. And so people say, well, my childhood wasn't as bad as yours. It's like, yes, but you live in a sick culture. So, you know, there's lots of things that we need to do to heal ourselves, even if we didn't have these kinds of dramatically bad childhoods. And I can't do it. I, I've never been able to do it. It's like pushing string uphill in a wind and the rain. And so the only thing that I've been able to do, and the, what I've stopped doing with friends, is talking to them about going to therapy and uh, simply uh, being being happy and productive and positive myself. And if they want that, right, then then they have. I have some leverage, right? If I, you know, if, but if they don't value what I have, then what do I really have uh, to offer them? Well, nothing really. So. That's sort of my suggestion. If you want to keep this guy's friendship in other ways, just stick to those topics that are productive for both of you. Stay away from the core opposing values. If you keep poking around with those, uh, I absolutely guarantee you that the friendship is going to explode.
1: All right. I I can definitely see that as being a... Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I actually... That's probably... I, I'm not sure exactly, you know, that's going to be a long time of, 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 well, I, um, uh, huh. okay, yeah, I see what you mean. I'm kind you of, feel you're have to that. Right. yeah,
0: I feel like I'm going to have to bite my tongue a lot, that's, that's what it is. Well, if... I mean, core values are explosive, too. This is why I say, you know, this is a slippery uh, and difficult and dangerous path that, that philosophy will lead you along. Core values are very explosive to talk about. Um, if, it, like if, it's, if it's come to the point where it's become a thing between you, then if you refrain from talking about these issues, he's going to bring them up. And he's going to bring them up in a mocking kind of way. And uh, he's going to sort of make, start to make fun of your values. And certainly this has happened to me about a million times, right? You know, where you have friends who then start to learn about your values or learn about your core, um, what, what is most important to you. And then they just start making fun, right? Um, you know, something, you know, there'll be something uh, on television about law and order, and there'll be some joke where someone will say, oh, yeah, but, but Steph wants pure chaos and everyone to eat their young, or something like that. I mean, just whatever nonsense people come up with that allows them to continue to needle you. And at that point, the friendship is doomed. I mean, it's beyond doomed. It's over, right? So I think maybe what you're feeling is the fact that this has become a bone of contention for him, and perhaps for you, but that if you stop addressing this in a uh, direct manner, that he's going to start directing it.
1: It could happen. It very could easily happen. I'm not sure. I can't predict the future, but (laughs) I would say that that's a possibility. It, it doesn't strike me as being something that's in his personality type, but as being, he's not the passive-aggressive type. I've never seen him be passive-aggressive, really. He's always been the aggressive type, the, the macho man. You know, the It's one of those macho men I was talking about, about in the ask a therapist thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, if you feel that there's something of value in the friendship that you wish to maintain, and, and of course not everyone has to have all the same values, as um, as we do, I mean, for instance, Christina likes um, washing. Um, so, sorry, cleanliness, cleanliness uh, yeah, and for me, cleanliness, of course, is next to godliness in that it's a, a fantastic and self-destructive myth. Um, but so far, the iron casing of, of dirt is uh, working okay. So you don't, I mean, not everyone has to share every value. I think there have to be core values that you share. Um, Definitely, if uh, this is going to blow up sooner or later, right? If you can get value out of the person and he can get value out of you, uh, you know, he's going to edit your articles. Maybe you do something for him. That's more of an economic exchange of value rather than it is a sort of shared intimacy of close friendship. But uh, without a doubt, I mean, unless the core values get addressed, it's um, it's not going to work. What variation in core values is tolerable? Well, some people donate fifty bucks, uh, some people donate a kidney um, there 's a small amount of variability that 's allowable there um, so that 's one possibility well, I mean, I can only speak from personal experience, and this is just sort of my i 'm still sort of hacking my way through some of these issues, but for me i 've had it that i have I have a friend with whom the majority of what we share is musical interests right i mean <laughs> and, Okay, he's not a Christian. He's, you know, he's a bit of a agnostic. When the topic has come up once or twice in like ten years, but I really like going to concerts with this guy. He's very, he, you know, he introduces me to all of this great music. He's really into music, like myself. And so this is guy will sometimes go to karaoke together, and he'll introduce me to these obscure songs that I really love, and and so on. So we share a value of of music, and we share. And he's actually uh, he's writing. He's written a book based on watching me write a book and saying, well, Jesus, Steph can do it. So so from that standpoint, that's that's a lot of... And of course, he's got a great sense of humor and so on. So yeah, we'll get together. There are certain things that I don't talk to him about, right? I mean, because it's just not going to get very far. But uh, th- there's, there's pleasure, right? There's pleasure in it. And really, as far as all of the abstract writing on the wall and Ten Commandments of Friendship goes... It really comes down to, is it pleasurable for you? It's a, is a friendship positive and pleasurable. And when it gets mired in the frustration of constantly arguing about opposing core values, the problem is life is short and that's not much fun. You're not, he's not going to change your mind. If you can't change his mind, this friction is going to be endless. There is an implicit condemnation in core values that you should not let sink into the mire of passive aggression. So um, that would be my sort of suggestion. The avoidance, oh, uh, uh, don't you see the avoidance as a surrender of integrity? No, I don't, and I'll tell you why. Whether right or wrong, this is sort of my opinion, but um, my integrity is not dependent upon me telling the whole and unvarnished and absolute truth to everyone in the world because then it would be impossible for me to have integrity, right? I can't talk to everyone all the time about everything and so on. So no, I don't think that it's a loss of integrity because my integrity is to do with my, uh, my moral choices in my life to have a synergy with somebody um, about just a particular thing, music or humor or whatever, or maybe you have someone that you like to play in a band with or you like going to museums with someone or you like talking about um, archaeology or something, you don't all have to have the same core values any more than the guy I go and buy my groceries from and I have to agree on the right foreign policy. There's overlapping areas of mutual benefit that are complicated, I certainly wouldn't say, though, that for me to withhold certain uh, ideas from people compromises those ideas within myself. They're just not present in that relationship, but I still act on them within my own life, uh, in the important areas. So, I don't think so. That makes sense. Woohoo! First time. Where would you draw the line between friends and acquaintances? Um, orgies, I think. Um, orgies are more between friends. And acquaintances, it's more keyboard-based. Orgies with the acquaintances, so you don't feel awkward? Right, right. Okay, so sorry, Christina's got much more experience in this, of course, than I do. Huh? Um, so, uh, Friends and acquaintances, well, uh, friends really are those that you share the core values with, and acquaintances with those who you share more peripheral or tertiary values with. Naturally, of course, I go to work, and um, people there know that I'm a libertarian. They don't know that I'm an anarchist. Uh, other than the graffiti in my uh, office and um, my chest, but um, wait, let me. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I won't, baby. Don't panic. I'm not showing the FDR nipples yet. So uh, because it's uh, it's cold, I might knock the camera over. Anyway, so um, um, and, and what do we have in value? Well, we both want to sell a particular product and services and so on. We're both excited. We're all excited by business. We're all excited by the creative process of making and selling something in the market. And those are values. Those are acquaintances, right? But they're not friends who are like core values who listen to my, um, some of them have found me just sort of out of curiosity Googling. Um, I mean, think they, they typed in spotty forehead. I kind of, they're looking for a kind of bird. Anyway, so, um, but yeah, acquaintances, you can share minor overlapping values. Uh, I don't uh, particularly go for, and this was more of the objectivist approach, that you kind of all have to be the same cardboard cutout value system, um, that to me would indicate that somebody knows all of the perfect values and is uh, uh, able to um, uh, to uh, impose those on others, you know, unilaterally and universally. And I, I'm certainly not smart enough for that. So. Right, but I, I
1: found it I found it funny that that the two things he seems to defend a lot are the fact that his father is a professor, a tenured professor at a university, and also the fact that his father is very involved in historical preservation stuff. So I can't see him dropping, (laughs) compromising, or talking about values when those values would imply that his father could be considered
0: evil. Well, sure. I mean, and just for those who haven't pursued this particular argument, this is a very significant thing that occurs, of course, when you start to talk about uh, fundamental values, the argument for morality, the gun in the room, and so on. What happens, of course, is that uh, if you speak to Mark and you say, well, I understand that your father wants to preserve historical buildings, the real question is, can I decide not to do that without getting shot? Would your father think or advocate that I should be shot for not wanting to fund historical buildings, or at least for not wanting to be forced to fund historical buildings? And if that question is put that, dare I say it, boldly, then the answer really is uh, a defining moment in a friendship, and and of course in, in, in Mark's life, right? So... So if he says, yes, uh, Nate, I think that you should be shot if you don't support my father's hobby of uh, preserving uh, buildings, then uh, clearly uh, this is not a conversation that is going to be very positive or productive or a relationship. You know, Once somebody uh, gets behind the gun in the room and cocks, cocks it at you, uh, you're kind of done, right? I mean, there's nowhere to go, right? Once somebody is, is, uh, is good uh, with you getting shot for disagreeing with them, um not so much with the friendship anymore right so um that is the great challenge that occurs with friendships and i had exactly the same thing happen with a friend of mine whose father is the principal at a public school so
1: yeah yeah but he's not going to to say that he's going instead he's going to say oh come on it's not getting shot you have to be reasonable about what you call it it's not getting shot it's it's uh some it's just you know it's like taxation versus theft versus slavery, you know, calling it what it really is, and then he he says that's oh that's overbearing and over emotional or that's an emotional word or emotional
0: you know you know what I mean you know what do I mean like a oh yeah, a but, then have, but then what you of course, what you face then, and it's the same problem that you face when you point out that Christians kind of want you kills, right then what you face is that there's a gun in the room, are points that's pointed at you and there's this uh, friend of yours who's behind it saying, well, you know, the problem is that you're calling it a gun. The problem isn't that I'm willing to have a gun pointed at you and the trigger pulled if you don't obey my father or me or or whatever. The problem is that you're calling it a gun, right? And that is a completely uh, disintegrating moment from an ethical or friendship standpoint, right? I mean, it's like saying to the woman, the problem is that you're calling it rape. Right I mean it's not the problem's not that you got raped or whatever I mean it's just that you're calling it rape rape is such an ugly word as people say calling it uh, a gun in the, it's so ugly it's so unpleasant it's so unnecessary so so the problem then becomes that you're willing to talk about violence that this person is willing to deploy against you and that completely detonates any virtue uh, any potential virtue remaining in the friendship that the problem with somebody pointing a gun at someone else is the person who's having the gun pointing at them calling it a gun right that is such a unbelievable skewing of any rational moral values that there's just nowhere to go from there.
1: Interesting. All right, that's those are the two questions. I think well, they're sorry. thoroughly answered. You answered them very well. I like especially the uh, children one. That's that's really me and uh, Megan were talking about that the other night, and of all the wrong reasons to have children, she agreed on all the all the you know why you shouldn't have children, and she. We both kind of wondered, well, why should you have children? You know, <laughs> what's a what's a good reason to have them? I can't. Neither of us could think of any, and I told him I would. Told her I would ask you or Christina, and she said, "Yeah, go ahead and ask her. See what they say."
0: But but we can go with that too. Uh, well, uh, somebody said uh, in the example of this music friend that I have. If you seek his company for the music, but you are diametrically opposed on a core value, aren't you then granting implicit approval to something you don't explicitly agree with? That, that's a difficult question. <laughs> oh, dear, the mic comes back from the wife. <laughs> Return to sender. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure that I do. Um, I'm not sure that I do do that. Um, but I'm certainly willing to, uh, to discuss it some more. Um, I don't think that I'm implicitly granting a value uh, to participating with somebody uh, in in something that I do enjoy with them, right? So I go and play online games, and I don't know any of the philosophies of any of the people who are shooting at me with rocket launchers, but um, we're enjoying the rocket launcher thing. I'm not sure that I would be implicitly granting them sanction on everything else, he certainly uh is not uh, not a statist uh, he certainly enjoys um, uh, the debates that we have uh, on the board, uh, so we 're not diametrically opposed that way like he 's not saying you know we should we should have communism or or you know our, the government isn 't big enough or anything like that he just dislikes it as much as I do, not to the same sort of extent he's um, he 's not a natural or or keenly interested philosopher from that standpoint uh, so um, no i don 't think that I would be granting. Implicit approval, if I go to a concert with someone, that I would be granting implicit approval to every value that we differ on, but uh, I'm certainly willing to hear more about that. Uh, Ah, okay, excellent. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, All right, let me get back to ye old Skypey von Skypeyville. where would I go now? Oh, Lord. Oh, where is my Skype? Here we go. Uh, okay, thanks very much. Uh, Dom, I think you're live.
2: Uh, am I here? You bet. Hello. Hi. Hi, Stefan. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Uh, oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's a really a pleasure and honor to talk to you. Uh, I've wanted you. to for some time. Just haven't had a good reason, I guess. Uh, No, I've always had good reasons, but anyway, forget that. No
0: problem.
2: (laughs) Um, uh, uh, A couple things. Actually, what I mainly wanted to talk about was the idea that was uh, uh, military service. You were talking before about atrocities and whatnot. Um, But can I make one brief comment about the previous caller's uh, um, uh, discussion about having children?
0: No, I'm afraid it doesn't fit into our completely is strictly online oh, format. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I know. Um, I, was, I
2: was just going to say that I don't know of anyone that's had, a, uh, a that became parents for, for a good reason. I think everyone, um, most people have children for things like uh, the two of us are great, so we would have a great child or, or whatever. Uh, the, the only point I was going to try and make is the idea that um, if you have a good relationship, and uh the two of you want to have a child that's a, a good enough reason you'll discover uh, the um, you'll discover discover what parenting is after you've done it not before. Can it's you tell me a bit more weird. what you mean by
0: that? I just want to make sure I understand what you mean when you say you'll i mean you'll discover what parenting is after it's not before i've just not i I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just not sure i understand it
2: um, just the idea that you have a child and uh there, there's a, a whole, a, horror, a, a whole lot of joy in in watching a child develop and whatnot.
3: There really is.
2: There are also a lot of horrors that you have. I mean, just that, I mean, I'm, I'm a parent. I have a grown daughter, and uh, there are some very trying times, particularly in the teenage years. But if you uh, if if you if you worry about all of that, um, um, you don't know what's going to happen until it does. In other words.
0: Right, right. And especially the the teenage years can be can be quite a challenge, for sure.
2: They can be brutal. Um, and uh, I think more often than not, they are. But the whole thing is, but the hardest part is getting over yourself, I think, and allowing your child to make their own mistakes and not, you know, jumping all over them for making them. You made your own mistakes. So they need to make theirs. And, uh, I think that the biggest thing is, is to see yourself more in a position of being there to help when help is asked for, particularly as they, in the teenage years. The teenagers are the, are the ones where they really don't want your opinion unless they ask for it and, and oftentimes will get hurt if you insist. Um, I'm just kind of, kind of making that point. The, the, what I was trying to say is the idea of if, if you have a healthy marriage, um, then, and, and the two of you want to have a family. Well, then, um, uh, trying to find the right reason to have a child is, is, I think, um, a little overanalyzing the situation.
0: The, the the trick is the happy marriage to begin with, right? I mean, if if that's in place, there's a lot of other stuff that's in place that's going to really help with parenting, of course. Yes. Yes.
2: And. uh uh, I think it's a wonderful thing. I, I, uh, I'm happy. The, my daughter is, is uh, the uh, probably the best accomplishment of my life, and uh, I think she knows that. But Well, I tell her that once in a while. Not often enough, I suppose.
0: Well, you make sure to tell her. And then uh, send her a big bill for your therapy that you've required after the teenage years. I think that will really help bring uh, it home to her.
2: Right. Well, one thing that I always told her is that uh, I felt that uh, I was going to save her a lot of money in, in therapy, by giving her um, someone to blame all of her problems on. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> She's going to go to a the therapist with a big picture of you yeah. just saying, that's it, that's all i got to say, now help me with that. Yeah. Not complicated, <laughs> not a whole bunch of things. Uh, yeah, that's nice, that's yeah. nice. Keep her away from extended family and just, you know, mess her up yourself. So the single focus, like a laser, it's so much more efficient. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. Now, did you have another anyway. comment or question? Oh, you had one th- about th- the, the other- situation. Pardon? You had one about the Iraq situation that I talked about.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, uh, um, you see a lot of uh, uh, activity, on, well, not a lot of activity on the boards about it, but every once in a while something, somebody will come on the boards suggesting that anyone that participates in military service is either a sociopath or a psychopath, and uh, um, I'm not so certain that that's, that's accurate. And uh, Well, uh, of course, I have a, I'm a Vietnam veteran so uh, uh I've been in the service, and uh, um, uh, uh the one thing that I would say to anyone that is uh is young enough to be in the service is that if you have any principles uh uh don't do it um, <laughs> but but uh the the you really do end up with a whole lot of baggage uh that uh, i don't think is uh i don't think it's possible to get over it really um but the, the the other side of it is that it, is what I was actually getting at is the idea that just because a person is in the service um it doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with them um a lot of it could be that they're too young to know better um or that uh well um there it, this may it may come up, come to this in this country if a draft is instituted there are going to be people that are in the uh, in the service
0: well, yeah, without a doubt, and I would not extend to—and uh, I'm—I'm the one who talks about that in terms of the board. So you've certainly come to the right source for that. I would not extend uh, any judgment of—I uh, mean, sort of for me, there's sort of two extenuating circumstances around military service. The one, of course, is to be drafted. Right? I mean, if you're drafted, um, you do have the possibility of fleeing, but uh, that's not always the easiest thing in the world. And the second, of course, is, as you say, lack of access to information, a lack of a moral understanding of the consequences of picking up arms and shooting whoever people point at. Um, it, it's, it's a real lack of lo- enormous amount of propaganda that goes on around the military and around war. Uh, somebody who's 20 years old, who maybe didn't finish high school or barely finished it, not going to have access to a lot of the alternate and perhaps more realistic views of what the um, involvement in the military is really all about. So I would not say that I would morally condemn as sociopathic or murderous or anything every single human being who's ever been in the army because there's not a lot of choice for some people either directly through, um, through the draft or indirectly through um, sort of propaganda. Uh, do you mind if I ask if you were drafted or did you join voluntarily?
2: Uh, yeah, I was drafted. Uh...
0: Right, so to me, uh, you were exactly uh, as morally culpable as a slave. I mean, you were uh, in a worse position than a slave is because you were uh, hired on at gunpoint. Uh, Hired on is probably the wrong phrase. You were dragged off to the killing fields at gunpoint, uh, put in murderous uh, situations that no human being should ever have to face. And uh, this is worse than uh, any human being would treat a slave. At least a slave owner has an economic interest in keeping the health of his slave intact, but the generals spend the lives of the soldiers like coins. And so uh, I would not, I completely agree with you, and you have nothing but sympathy for me for what you went through. I just hope that you're able to fight your way free of any sort of moral guilt for this kill-or-be-killed situation that you were dragged into against your will.
2: Enough. uh, For me, um, I suppose, as I convinced them that I was, um, well, at at one point during basic training, I refused to carry a gun, and they ended up sending me to uh, see a shrink and, uh, I guess, he gave, came away with the idea that I perhaps was a psychopath because I was arguing uh, the idea that I thought that uh, that killing people was a bad idea and that I didn't see it as a way of solving problems. And if they were going to order me to kill people, well, then I couldn't see a rational reason to choose you know, who I was going to kill. Um, and so I guess they thought I was uh, a little crazy, so I didn't carry a gun in Vietnam, which was kind of nice. But it, I'll tell you this. It still doesn't help in terms of the kind of baggage you carry around afterwards. I mean, because there's uh, particularly, and this, I would say this to anyone who faces the possibility of being drafted that has any kind of principles whatsoever. Um, if you're in that situation, I would suggest that you run. I realize what I'm saying is probably illegal now, but uh, um, uh, the. the, the it's difficult to get past the idea of having to compromise your principles, uh, compromise your dignity uh, over being drafted, and all of that. And uh, it's a mess.
0: It is a mess, and I would say that um, whether you're drafted or not, um, you should run. Um, if you, you know, if you join up like this, this guy did, who's now seeking asylum in Canada, and there's another guy who's mm-hmm. gone to jail. Um, my advice would be to to run either way. Um, there, right. there's, a, there's a difference, as you know, much 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 more deeply and much more greatly than I do and and hopefully ever will. There's a difference between compromising your values, which to some degree we all have to do when we pay taxes if we disagree with that system and so on. But then there's a complete and utter reversal of any sane or decent human values, which is going over and uh, shooting, and not, not that you did, but going over and shooting people who've never done you any direct harm and have not threatened you in any direct way for some nonsensical domino theory that turned out to be completely false anyway. That's more than a compromise of your values. That's a complete and total reversal of anything that's decent in the world. And uh, I think, of course, it's desperately tragic that you had to go even into the war theater, even to the proximity of this kind of slaughter where, what is it, two to three million uh, Vietnamese and Cambodians died in the space of eight or nine years or were were killed. Uh, It's a complete nightmare. But, of course, because you had a gun pointed at your head, your moral responsibility is complete, in my view, is completely eradicated. And uh, I think that you should be enormously proud, if I can say so, of your ability to have withstand, withstood this enormous and extraordinarily challenging moral test of um, being coerced into doing something that would violate any decent and moral human standards. So, um, I mean, if it makes any sense, uh, uh, good for you.
2: Are you still there? You bet. Oh, okay. I thought I thought I had. Well, a you mind didn't
0: mind think mind. I was going to speak that quickly, right? You just, oh, yeah. no possibility he's going to get done in 90 seconds. There's just no way. So you actually, did you lie down for a nap? Did you go out for a walk? Um, <laughs> by the time I come back, you should be winding up, right?
2: Okay. Well, so thank you so much, Stefan, And uh, um, uh, I, I appreciate what you said. Um, and, and like I said, with, with uh, anyone with... the. the um, um, Anything you can to avoid uh, to avoid mer- military service, if it's your mind, uh, then you should go ahead and do that. Um, you definitely should go ahead. And, and I'm thankful for the Canadians' uh, uh, welcome of anybody, anyone
1: that's in that situation. It's-
0: yeah, well, I mean, certainly, uh, uh, you know, from a moral standpoint, anybody who can get away from this, uh, this slaughterhouse factory would be well advised to do so. And if you can't, then at least don't take the moral ownership for it yourself because you are in a corner and you are – uh, you have a gun pressed to your forehead, and there's really not much you can do, so don't succumb to the brutality that you're coerced to to be involved in.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that should wrap it up, I think, for me.
0: Okay, well, listen, thanks very much. Uh, stay in touch, and uh, I guess we'll chat to you uh, another Sunday or two from now.
2: Certainly, I hope so.
0: Okay, thanks so much. Take care. All right, so we have somebody else. Uh, who wants to hear? Oh, okay, all right. Um, I think, uh, Greg, is your mic on? You had to, he had some questions, I think. Let's move him to, uh, to Chatty Von Chattyville here. Whether you like it or not, you're on, baby. So you can hear me then? Okay, cool.
3: Uh, well, I guess I'll just, uh, uh, start with the story about, uh, the, uh, the kid that left to join the Marines. Um, the company I worked for, there was a, uh, he was must have been maybe 20 or 21. I think he was an intern, but uh, he was with us for a couple of years, and uh, he left uh, to join the Marines, and there was a huge parade, not a parade, but an office party with banners and cake and gifts and all that, and, you know, pretty much Seeing off the conquering hero kind of thing, right? And it just really—I thought the whole thing was kind of unfortunate. So I—I I didn't go. But over the months, I tried to talk him out of doing it, and uh, and he just—he wouldn't hear of it. And a couple of weeks ago, he just came back. I guess a couple of weeks ago, um, and he's on leave now. But. Um, They've actually got him scheduled to go back again in uh, the spring, and uh, it was interesting to see the change in his personality from uh, before and after. I mean, before I mean he was like um, cocky and proud and and uh, energetic and and uh, uh, motivated and all of that, and he after coming back. You know, he he was sort of,
1: it,
3: it, yeah, he was definitely it had definitely flattened him out, and 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 the weirdest thing was, you you look him in the eye and it, it was like his eyes had gone cloudy, you know, it was just a weird experience. He's talking about the 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 uh, um, insurgents they'd encountered over there and. Um, and about uh, some of the things they had to do, and
0: how actually how uh, well trained the insurgents were. <laughs> sure, they're uh, often better trained than the U.S. troops, right? Because they've had, they've been these sort of mercenaries, and it is to a large degree mercenaries that are part of the insurgency. They're you know, professional soldiers who've been doing it for 10, 20 years, right? And they've been moving around the world uh, on a variety of conflicts, and they're well funded by. Uh, groups and uh, they know what they're doing, right? I mean, the, these are sure. the, for these young American kids the first time they've been in combat, right? But the insurgents are usually people who've had quite a lot of experience in exactly this type of warfare. So of course, you're not going to beat them, right?
3: Right, guys who've been who, who fought in the ten years war with Iran and guys who've been in Af- Afghanistan for ten or twelve years, right? Even you know guys coming from Syria and Lebanon and places. Yeah, the Mujahideen like who, from
0: Afghanistan are all over these place, right? So. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, you're, you're really throwing up uh, rookies against very, very experienced people uh, with all the predictable results that would entail.
3: And it was just, I mean, it was just a creepy experience to listen to him tell these stories. And as he's telling them, he's he's got his hands in his pockets, and he's he's just looking at the floor and nodding his head. And you could tell that, you, you could just tell that the, 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 you know, the movie's replaying in his head over and over and over again. It was just uh it was a
0: disturbing uh, uh encounter, I have to say. this uh poor fellow is going to be feeling about all the people who baked him cakes to send him over to this hell hole. Oh yeah.
3: That still uh, that still sickens me. I mean, they were giving this guy, you know, G.I. Joe dolls and yucking it up and, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, telling him how great he is and how wonderful this is that we're doing this and all.
0: you a hero.
3: Yeah, and and you're telling this to, you know, a 20-year-old kid, right? What the hell does he know? So he thinks, you know, he thinks this is the greatest thing he could do, right? Because everybody around him tells him it is.
0: What, uh, yeah, it's often sort of baffled me that we talk about these young men and young women as as heroes, moral heroes, uh, fine, upstanding citizens, and so on. Um, I've been thinking about philosophy for decades, and I tell you that I do not feel quite certain as yet to the point where I'm willing to go and bomb cities and uh, kill lots of people. (laughs) <laughs> and yet, these uh, 20-year-old kids are so well-versed in all of the depths of moral philosophy that they are perfectly sure and perfectly certain about the rightness of their cause, that they're willing to go and murder hundreds of thousands of people. I just must say that whatever school of philosophy these young men have gone to, I sure wish they'd take some older folk, because that kind of certainty is really extraordinary, and I'm sure uh, entirely out of yeah, it's Yeah, it was really sad. I You know... It,
3: I, w- I would wince listening to him talk about, you know, you know hoo hua gung ho about his his decision to enlist and about how fantastic, you know, America is and, and all of that and and, uh, and and actually that was all before I even found uh, free domain but uh, um, but but even then it just kind of turned my stomach to think about it you know. And 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 there was nothing you could say to this guy that would talk him out of it. I tried a dozen different ways. And, you know, it's just once once you flip that switch, you know, it's kind of stuck there.
0: Right. i right. Well, it certainly uh, I think is is true, sorry to interrupt, but I, I think it certainly is true that one of the things that characterizes an imperialistic empire state as opposed to the sort of shiny-faced and dewy-eyed ideals of the original republic, is that virtue in the original republic is really around civil disobedience and independence and personal virtue. Virtue, as is defined in a militaristic, empire-based culture, is virtue is defined as the desire to murder on the behalf of the rulers, right? And that's quite a shift, and of course it takes quite a long time to get there. And there's an enormous amount of propaganda that is required to shift that definition of virtue from something that is personal, universal, and humane, uh, and independent, to something that is really just around a slavish regard and a slavish desire to murder on behalf of the rulers. And we can see this, while I'm not directly comparing the two cultures, we can see this shift in terms of the Weimar Republic to Nazi Germany, we can see it from the middle to the late Roman Empire, Uh, and sadly, of course, we can see this in America and uh, England now, that virtue and what is called upstanding right and moral is the uh, is sort of uh, is slavish eagerness to kill uh, whoever the rulers point at. And that's really quite a change.
3: Yeah, I, actually, I, I wonder sometimes if that, uh, that uh, ideal we point to at the founding uh, ever really even existed, if that's not just a, a fantasy that, libertarians have invented this, you know, imagine a golden age of
0: principle of small government because weapons of mass destruction didn't exist as yet, so they didn't have much of a choice, right? Couldn't make the federal government too big because everyone was well-armed and equally armed, but the moment that the government gets a disproportionate amount of power, yeah, no, I agree. I think government is always and forever the same, and the only thing that kept the uh, republic uh, in any kind of minarchistic situation was simply the lack of ability to exercise the kind of power that they wanted. But that's uh, long in the past now. I don't think it was a better government. I think it was just a more liberal. Right, right. And
3: so virtue back then was simply uh, allying yourself with, you know, one set of... of, one kind of hierarchy over another really i mean it, it sure it was it was rebellious and uh anti establishment and and uh, um revolutionary in terms of its well not even really revolutionary but well incrementally revolutionary anyways in terms of its philosophy but uh but 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 it you're still, as a as a patriot or uh, back then, or as a um, a rebel, you're you're still you're still kind of pledging yourself to somebody else, as opposed to pledging yourself to actual virtue, right?
0: The thing that occurred in 1776 was that. The 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 fundamental issue was that the government was too far away, at least for those who wanted more power at home. I also think that it's true that if you look at the general combined... There, maybe there's some way to do this mathematically that's beyond me, but if there was some way to mathematically measure this, maybe there is, where you could say, okay, so in the founding of the republic, there were taxes were much smaller and so on. Taxes were much lower, government was much smaller. But that government power, as did exist, uh, contributed, uh, actually maintained and fed the institutions of slavery, uh, the institutions of mass draft that led to 600,000 deaths in the Civil War, and God knows how much other human misery uh, that occurred, and um, also, of course, subjugated the rights of women, of which there are almost none. Now, some of those have been largely remediated, right? The rights of women have expanded, the slavery is gone, and uh, so on. So it's almost like there's a constant amount of freedom in human society it just shifts around, right? So now there's no slavery, women have rights, children have rights, but now we're all taxed into uh, into the next dimension. So uh, it's like, you know, it, the government giveth with one hand and taketh away with the other, so to speak.
3: Right, it, it, uh, it gives people the impression that there can only ever be so much freedom, but the, the presence of uh, coercive institutions... Uh, necessitates the limitation of freedom. You know, you, you, you remove the, the coercive institution, uh, then there's plenty of room for freedom.
0: Right, and this is one of the major problems with the coercive institutions, as I was talking about in terms of Iraq. The very existence of a government causes people to have to justify that through distorting reality, right? So the very presence of a government, which is always bewildering, I remember this even as a kid being just kind of bewildered by it. Uh, this and, and of course, what happens is people then say, well, you know, people are really bad. You know, like we, there was this thing posted about the, uh, by uh, a conservative view of libertarianism, and I think it was because somebody confused the word libertarian with libertine. But basically it was saying, well, libertarians are a pipe dream because, uh, libertarianism is a pipe dream because we're all born from original sin and we're all flawed and therefore we need governments to control us. And of course, that all results or resides on the basic axiom that, the citizens are uh, sort of flawed through original sin or through some essential corruption in within their natures, but the rulers, by heavens, uh, are not, right? And <laughs> but, of course, if it's original sin that applies to everyone, then you simply could not have a state, as we've talked about before, and you certainly couldn't have a state that was um, voted in by all these corrupt people. So this is really the danger that religion and the state have when they get together is that religion really is the explanation as to why there is a state. It's a completely false explanation in the same way that it's supposed to sort of quote explain how the universe comes about. It's a completely false explanation. But uh, when you first come across the idea of a state when you're younger, uh, it's kind of baffling because it's like, okay, so all these people who tell me what to do. uh, Why do they get to tell me what to do? Well, because you give them permission to do it. It's like, well, but they, they give me, if I give them permission, why, 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 why do we need these laws in and jail? And right? So this essential mystery, which is the existence of a state, completely corrupts thinking. This is why philosophy has been such a mess throughout history. It's either trying to justify the state or it's trying to justify the existence of God. It warps every single conceivable notion that could go on in philosophy to try and justify either of these two completely irrational and non-existent institutions, and especially to turn them into uh, sort of metaphysical or moral absolutes. It just completely destroys any rationality in philosophy, and that's another reason why these things are so dangerous, is they corrupt people's thinking.
3: Right, because fundamentally, it's a rationale
0: for the the use of coercive power. Yeah, it's all. I mean, most of philosophy is an ex post facto justification for why uh, you should smile when they point the guns at you. Exactly, and, and and I would
3: I would I would argue that that was also the case. You know, at founding, it doesn't you know that doesn't that didn't just suddenly become that way, you know, because of the Civil War, or because of the Federal Reserve, or because of you know um, Alexander Hamilton, or it, it, it was there from the very beginning. You know, the fact that they were u- willing to use violence to you know fire right and it's a, it's a cute phrase but in, in political terms well it, it doesn't it doesn't make much sense right you, know, you can't you, you can't expect the the fire to get smaller by throwing more fire onto it right and so and so to me the idea that that uh, that there can be a virtuous state is, is kind of
0: uh, national and benevolent god or or something. I mean, it's all it's all just a bunch of made up nonsense. And most thinkers are complete slaves to either the power of the church or the power of the state. And so what that does is uh, it means that all of their uh, thinking is just so heavily corrupted by the need to believe in these imaginary things. If, if biologists were forced to justify the physiology of elves and leprechauns, well, of course, biology would be a complete mess. And I shouldn't say forced, exactly. It's not so much the case anymore, but it's natural. And, and so the important thing is just to, to recognize that, that the very foundations of the belief systems themselves are non-existent. So, of course, if you're going to start off with 2 plus 2 equals 5, your mathematics is going to be complete nonsense.
3: And so if you really want to see just how sick and corrupt that kind of thinking is, and those kinds of thinkers are, all you have to do is look into the face of a soldier.
0: Mm. Right, that is the end result of all this kind of stuff, right? That is where this leads. All of these justifications for the power of the state and of religion, it's fine, and so on, they all end up in this uh, situation where uh, young men's souls are destroyed, because they believe that it's virtuous to go and shoot people <clears throat> that they're told to shoot. And that then, of course, replicates itself. Part of the reason that you need soldiers is so that domestic life remains brutal. Right? You, 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 the soldier goes overseas and kills Iraqis. He comes home. What kind of father and husband is he going to be? Well, he's going to be uh, destructive. Uh, he's going to be problematic to society as a whole. And that means that you get another generation of children who grow up alienated and angry, which you can then harvest as your next group of soldiers. And I, I think, to to a certain extent, at least at a subconscious
3: level, that's one of the reasons why we keep having wars. Because yes, these no, people, they know. They know that if they don't have one, then sooner or later, there's one generation
0: that's going to wake up and say, oh, what the hell have we been up to all this time? Well, you know, Let's cut that out. Right. I mean, how long did it take for the end of the Cold War to start in with the war on terror? It was about 10 years, uh, maybe 12 years. And, uh, of course, military spending didn't decrease during that time significantly, so uh, this is shows just how responsive this is to what people actually want. And it's that old Herman Goering quote, right? It says, the average citizen doesn't want war. What is the average boy on a farm going to gain from war? Nothing. He's going to be gone for years, and he's going to come back, if he comes back at all, missing an arm or a leg or an eye or a hand. Uh, the common people don't want war, but it's relatively easy because the rulers do want war. Uh, it's relatively easy to get it going. All you have to do is say that you're about to be attacked, demonize your enemies, and say that anyone who counsels rationality is a traitor to the country. Uh, and then everybody stampedes off the cliff. Uh, but, of course, all of that is not because of any essential irrationality in human nature, but because of the propaganda of priests. Right, because we've been pounded into believing that Vice
3: is virtue, and if and if that cycle ceases at some point, then the the subsequent generation is going to condemn the, uh, the 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 existing generation, and they don't want that.
0: Right, and of course, there's an enormous. I mean, the, you you sow the fields uh, of the world with blood. And, uh, you know, enormous profits grow thereof, right? So uh, it's parasitical from the rulers down, and it's very much about biological flourishing and amoral maximization of your gene pool at everybody else's expense and so on. But the the, the saving grace of all of this is that it has to be sold with an enormous amount of moral propaganda because the rulers understand the power of morality a lot more than the moralists do. (laughs) That's true. They get, they get how important it is to train children uh, in false ethics. They get how the world runs on ethics, whereas uh, libertarians spend time arguing about whether if you're hanging from a flagpole, you should be allowed to kick in a window to crawl through somebody's apartment, even though there's such a thing as private property. That's where we're spending a good chunk of our energies, whereas uh, those who would do great evil in the world are spending their time being certain about training the children in all the wrong things.
3: Right, or 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 arguing against the idea that there there even is any, I think such thing as uh, a moral standard. Right, right. I mean,
0: can we not at least be as certain as evil people about the power of morality? Could would that not be something that we could aspire <laughs> to? You know, to to at least uh, be be. 50% as certain as the most evil people in the world about the power of ideas and of ethics. Uh, that, to me, would be an enormous step forward. Uh, that's not something that libertarianism is, uh, I think, quite ready for.
3: Right, right.
0: And, and in a sense, that, you know, they they kind of
3: have a point because what they're trying to do is um, uh, t- take the weapon away, right? You know, the evil people. They 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 understand the power of morality, and so. If you can convince them somehow that it doesn't exist,
0: then you've taken their weapon away. Well, actually, you've just taken a bullet or two away. They'll just club you then with the hilt, right? (laughs) That's true. That's true. Well, I mean, the problem is, though, of course, that, that where these arguments really root is in the minds of children, and children don't... Believe in relativism, and they don't believe in subjectivism, and they don't—they believe in right and wrong, and that's what they play—is cops and robbers, and, and cowboys and Indians, and right and wrong. Uh, children are not because they're more rational and sane than most adults. Uh, children don't believe in all of this hyper-sophistical Kierkegaardian nonsense about subjective reality and this um, this Kantian idea of the noumenal realm and Platonic world of forms, and all of the bullshit that academics spew out like uh, like ink out of a squid. Uh, to obscure some simple basic facts. Children, which is where these people focus based on early childhood education and public schools and so on, children uh, totally get that morality is absolute and right and wrong. And if you try uh, taking a kid's uh, Halloween candy saying it's a tax, just see how well it works. They totally get this stuff down in their core. So while we jabber among ourselves about all these uh, nonsensical and academic subjectivism of morality, uh, those who would do bad things in the world are going straight to the source of where all these ideas actually have real power, which is in the minds of children that's, um, I think that 's a real shame it 's one of the reasons why I try and talk about sort of child raising and, and parenting and so on, and also you know why or how, if I get to time and, and, and uh, space to do it, uh, I think that uh, taking these ideas to kids is very important I plan to do that in a raincoat just sort of by hanging around children 's playgrounds. Uh, I think that should work out. <laughs> uh, yeah. will staff has some logic for you, kid. <laughs> get into right. the rational mobile. <laughs> I got a bag of morality here. You have the best candy. Want some. <laughs> Christina's threatening me with even more medication. <laughs> got a got a got a hypo uh, over there, just stabbing you in the
3: uh, thigh when you're uh, a little. <laughs> but uh no the, the the uh the moral mechanism in the mind is a is mean, pretty much a
0: biological
3: fact now isn't it I mean, there's there's dozens of books on it and the only question i have is it is is it a you know, is it is that mechanism a um um a delicate wristwatch, or or is it a a, a printing press? All right. If I hit with a hammer, am I
0: gonna readjust one screw, or am I gonna crush it completely? Um, I'm sorry, that's one too many metaphors for me. <laughs> hitting the wristwatch with a <laughs> hammer. I, I just I lost the the thread of connection with something biological there. So if you could run that through me again. Well, I guess I guess what I'm I guess what I'm saying there is.
3: Uh, Given the amount of effort that uh, um, coercive institutions um, engage in to change the minds of children, uh, that would suggest that this moral mechanism is a great deal more resilient than than just some, you know, um, Chinese origami in there,
0: right? Of course, because it is at the root of natural selection for for us but the investment is pretty good you know from a from a standpoint of just return on investment what happens right i mean basically the children get educated at the cost of eight thousand or so six to eight thousand dollars a year which you know for the sake of uh, of ease of argument goes on for 15 years or whatever so that's uh, let's just say five thousand dollars a year uh, is what seventy five thousand dollars so it costs $75,000 to educate a child. Of course, the people who run the state don't pay for that themselves. The taxpayers pay for it. But even if they did, right, $75,000 to educate a child, which uh, said, said education then means that the child is going to be paying taxes uh, with blind, conforming, bar-like uh, charity for the rest of his natural life. And, you know, how much is the adult... Uh, taxed throughout the course of working for forty or forty-five years. Well, it's a heck of a lot more than seventy-five thousand dollars, right? So it is a—it's uh, a very good investment as far as that goes. I mean, people are paying—you know—forty thousand dollars a year in taxes over the course of four, uh, 40 years. So what's that? I don't know—one point six million dollars off a seventy-five thousand dollar investment. That's pretty good, right? I mean, that's uh, that's a pretty good investment. There's really good economic reasons why it's far better to invest in controlling the minds of children uh, than it is uh, to invest in controlling the wallets of adults, right? Because if you control the minds of children, they'll hand over their money with a smile, or maybe a grumble, but they'll still hand it over. And the enforcement costs go down enormously, so that's why I think it's sort of important to either talk to parents or to talk to...
3: Which I guess, to some extent, really kind of makes... um, this sort of um, uh, secular liberalism, uh, almost more pernicious than uh, than, than the aggressive, uh, um, domineering, uh, um, uh, hyper-religious forms of government we've seen in the past, where it's just blatant.
0: I was just noticing today that The God Delusion by Dawkins is number one on the on the nonfiction list, highly appropriate. And it is good. I mean, Christina's just saying fantastic. It is good, but it's also very dangerous, and I certainly don't mean to be Mr. Doom and Gloom, but uh, history has shown that withdrawing people's allegiance to one false god doesn't exactly um, uh, deconcentrate their allegiance to other false gods, right? So uh, skepticism um, in religion presaged totalitarianism in government in the 20th 19th to 20th century uh, particularly in, in the communist realm but also throughout uh, sort of uh, europe and so on um, a skepticism in religion it, it, it tends to increase people's allegiance to the state because of course the root is the parents which are not examined and so if you subtract 25% from religious you just add 725 percent to state and you can see this in Uh, socialists, of course, who tend to be skeptical of religion, but are very pro-state. You can see this in Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, who are skeptical of religion, but statist in their natures. Um, And they have a kind of unquestioning allegiance to the state that they exactly condemn uh, in the Christian allegiance or religious allegiance to the idea of God. So I certainly am happy, of course, on the balance, but it is a risky time because when you take away people's religious faith, um, they then have to pour more allegiance into the state because if they disbelieve in both, they come right up against their parents fundamentally
3: right and you and you 're replacing one moral myth with another really uh, you're you 're substituting uh, uh moral allegiance to some you know intangible ideal to uh, with a moral allegiance to just some guy
0: right. Dangerous to have allegiance to the state than it is to have allegiance to a god. Um, it really is like ninety-nine percent horror versus one hundred percent horror. But at least you can claim that you can have a direct relationship with God, which contradicts what other religious people are saying about God. You can't have that with the state. Right. There is no
3: there's there's no possibility for a Luther who's going to nail his precepts to the door of the White House. Right. Right. You know, not not to suggest that uh, Luther was any more virtuous than any of the Catholic clergy he was railing against, but just that whole idea of the ability to um, still own your own, um, you know, your own rational consciousness.
0: And Luther did a lot of good. Uh... Sorry, Luther did a lot of good. In my view, Luther did a lot of good despite himself in terms of the separation of church and state. Once you break the monopoly of the Catholic hegemony, then uh, you realize that you can't have a union of church and state when religion becomes fragmented because then it just becomes a war of all against all. So, uh, you know, it was a step forward, I guess, in a horrible kind of way.
3: The state itself is a kind of war of all against all.
0: No, it's not a kind of war. <laughs> but, I mean, this, the, as, as Ayn Rand said, and I think quite rightly, right, I mean, the, the state needs to be separated from economics, as she put it, as if that were possible. The state needs to be separated from economics in the same way that the church and the state need to be separated. And I wouldn't agree with that in so, so far as you cannot separate the state from economics because the state is a, really around the, the, uh, the moving around at the point of a gun of the, uh, the, uh, the wealth of millions uh, and uh, the entire reason for the state is to is to control the economy. You can't separate the state from the economy. From the, it's like separating the soul from the body. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense because there's no such thing as a soul, and it doesn't make any sense to, say, separate the state from the economy because the state is all about manipulating the economy. That's the whole reason it exists.
3: I economy mean, really is just a collective representation of I- individual value.
0: Right, and the state is just all and about so, guns at people and making the cost benefit of hanging on to your money versus surrendering it to the state uh, so egregious that you'll just hand it over and complain or not. That's still the, the sequence.
3: Right, surrendering surrendering your own value um, to to
0: that of another by, right.
3: by co- coercive force.
0: Right, and um, in the same way that, at least in the modern West, and though they're not so much in the East, the reason that people surrender to their parents is biological in nature. We have to have our parents in order to survive. The reason that people surrender to religion is for fear of social ostracism and feeling guilt or evil or bad. And the reason, but the, and the reason that people surrender to the state is because they're afraid of being thrown in jail. But in each of these situations, people build these fantasy puff pink candy cloud uh, castles to live in, which make it all moral, right? I love my parents. Uh, I believe in God and I love God. Jesus died for my sins and I love my country. But when you strip away all of this pious nonsense, which people erect because they have fear, right? I don't have to walk around uh, uh, talking about um, uh, that uh, that I love my wife, I love my wife, I love my wife. I mean, I mention it, of course, when it's relevant, but I don't have to keep pumping it out. Uh, when people protest so much and bring build, uh, build up all of these fantastic superstructures in reaction formations to the fear and control that's being imposed upon them, Uh, It's a good sign, because it means that people can't live with the humiliation, so they have to make up fairy stories wherein it's not humiliation, but virtue. And that means that you pull apart these fairy stories or fairy tales, and you can usually get to some kind of core, but it's pretty destabilizing for people. Yeah, and not to trivialize the horror of the crime, but it's like the
3: happy place that the rape victim goes to when an event is occurring, right? Right. Right.
0: No, that's quite right.
3: and, and and when you and when you start uh, selling that in a mass way through public education and and communications and whatnot, it becomes it becomes the apparatus of propaganda that perpetuates the whole thing. And I I think that that's I, I think that that's it's pretty obvious that that's what they're doing with with things like the
0: Iraq War,
1: you
0: know. Uh, send sent 21, 22,000 more troops. Um, you know, as I've mentioned before, it certainly could be the case, though I have no evidence for it, that we're in the stages of the mass pillaging of the public purse. And this would, of course, predict and explain why the troop escalation is going on for a conflict that obviously is not succeeding and, and is moving entirely in the wrong direction. Why would you send more troops? Well, the more troops you send, the more you get to build the government and the more war profiteering goes on. Once you start reducing troop levels, then the amount of war profiteering that's going to go on is going to decline. And so there's no interest in winning the war. It's just that if you escalate it further, more profit can be made. And that, I think, would be the case that what's happened is the public treasury is so depleted now, uh, especially with the rise of the euro and the yen, the reducing the demand for the U.S. dollars. The public treasury is now so depleted that the, um, the Indiana Jones grab fest is, I think, underway. And that, I mean... Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that would certainly explain uh, the recent decision to escalate what is completely uh, – and it was clearly an unpopular and, in, and, and deranged war, even for those who would be in, who would have been in support of it when it started. The, the, the support now is merely just an active tooth-gritting will. Explainable in uh – in another way as well. I mean, it's... the, uh, no, the, Greg, the there's military. there's no other way. <laughs> there's no other way to explain it. It's just this way. There's just one way to explain it. How many times do I have I had to tell you? I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, master. <laughs> Excellent, my minion. <laughs> but uh,
3: if you look at the government, I mean, if you look at the, the military as just another government bureaucracy, then the troop escalation is exactly what you would expect. Right? Oh, the program's not working. We need a lot more of it. Right, right. Right? So... I think that's quite true. uh, Sorry, go ahead. And so the the escalation is just exactly the same thing you get with the budget expansions to to, uh, departments like, uh,
0: you know, education and welfare and whatnot. It's, It's the exact same scenario. Well, I think that's true, but I think that the one thing that's slightly different is that war is where government really finally gets to loosen its shirt, to, sort of gets to loosen its tie, kick back, and finally be itself. I think that most people feel that the war in Iraq as a whole is a complete utter fiscal, moral, and foreign policy disaster. Not, there's not a lot of equivocation, and I don't think that's just the sources. I mean, it's just people that I've talked to in the States when I've been over in business there. Uh, everybody's rolling their eyes about Iraq, and everyone realizes it's a complete mess in a way that they don't realize that the Department of Education is a mess. Like, everyone knows, oh, the schools need to be better and so on, but in that case, they do believe that sort of spending more or whatever is going to solve the problem, but that it needs to be there to begin with, whereas the war in Iraq, the military, the people will still say we need it, but the war in Iraq I don't think is quite the same in that people say, I don't think people really feel that if we spend more or send more troops in that it's going to get better. I think that they feel that the war itself is completely misjudged, misguided, and complete. What does he call it? Catastrophic. This is is uh, John Stewart's term, right? Uh, And and so I think people. it's a little bit different than other government agencies because the war itself people have no faith in, but they still do have faith in things like Medicare and Medicaid and, and Social Security and so on. They just think those things should be reformed, but I don't think that people believe that the war in Iraq needs to be tweaked or improved. I think that most people... They don't know how to get out of it with any kind of honor, as if that's possible or even important, but uh, they certainly don't think that it's, it, it was justified, required, necessary, valuable, protecting, or anything like that. And, and what's the one thing that you think that, uh,
3: that allowed people to come to that decision about the Iraq war uh, more quickly than they would, uh, say, in terms of, Uh, Bush's uh, No Child Left Behind program.
0: What's the one difference that, to me, it seems that? Well, I'll let you answer. Well, I think it's entirely optimistic, Greg, that you would ask me for just one thought. Um, (laughs) You want me to run through a podcast count now, or we'll we'll do that a little bit later. But um, no, the one thing I I mean, the one thing is improved communication. The one thing I I think the one fundamental thing is improved communication. It's very hard for people to lie about the Iraq War. Uh, it is very, there's lots exactly. of people blogging, there's lots of people, you can get access to foreign newspapers just with a click of your mouse, right, I mean, uh, it, is, it is very hard uh, for, for lies to continue. That's the wonderful thing about the Internet, and I still have to do my whole podcast series on the Internet, which I've sort of kind of got planned, but I haven't got round to. And so, sorry, that, that's just my, The only thing is that people have access to better information. They don't have access to solutions yet, except for these kinds of conversations that we're having here, but they certainly have access to better information, and they know that it's all lies, and they can see this kind of stuff, whereas beforehand... And, and it only takes one person to break through that, right? I mean, the mainstream reporters are only talking, uh, only speaking the truth about the war and calling it uh, a civil war and, you know, they still use the terms like insurgents and so on, but the mainstream reporters are only doing it because the, the, uh, the sort of the dike has broken through the internet to begin with, so the information's already out there, they're trying to play catch-up, and they realize that if they didn't start to tell the truth about the Iraq war people would simply recognize that they were just mere arms of government propaganda and would go to the internet and say, screw you people and, the, you know, the, the dollars would dry up in terms of Advertising and so on, so because the internet breaks the story first, what happens is the media have to follow it, otherwise they lose all it's it's
3: what they have to lie about that is really the significant differentiator you know the the fact that um you know the government lies uh to to convince us that you know. No. only you know x percent of uh, of uh, children are dropping out of school or you know what have you versus the Iraq war where the lie is you know guns and death and destruction it's right there in people's faces they don't have any choice but to confront it so so the you know truths about you know the the efficacy of uh, of uh, welfare programs or the failure of the public education system. People don't have a problem equivocating that because there's no obvious gun in the room.
0: Well, I think that's true, and I think or- that the effect is the effect is as I've talked about in a podcast recently. The effect is much more diluted for things like welfare programs and poor education. The effects don't really show up for years, whereas bodies coming back in bits. Uh, is the one thing I think that could occur better, which is still radioactive for the U.S. media, is uh, what is not occurring as yet is the footage of Iraqi deaths. Right? You still you don't see that kind of stuff happening very much. That is a level of empathy that is going That's to be very hard true. for uh, for Americans to to cross over to. Right? It is not particularly humane to be concerned about the murders of people you consider on your side, especially when the murders of those who are not on your side tend to be a hundred times larger. So I think that um, everyone says, well, the war in Vietnam was kind of lost because Americans saw the bloodshed that was occurring to their own people more directly on television and so on. I think that's all true. America lost, what, 58,000 troops compared to 2 to 3 million, they don't even know, uh, of um, uh, of uh, North, uh, North Vietnamese and uh, <clears throat> Cambodians killed. Um, so, you know, again, hundreds or thousands of times the death count. I, I don't think that it's particularly advanced for a society to say, we're unhappy that our boys, whatever that means, are getting killed. But I think that the real challenge and the really explosive and radioactive aspect of the war would occur when you would begin to see uh, bits of Iraqi children embedded in walls and all the other horrors that are going on. And if you found a way, because the language barrier, right, there's a reason that countries don't intend to invade other countries that have the same language, right? Um, the language barrier makes them seem even more foreign and strange and jabbery and screechy and so on but if you were to have sort of dubs with American sounding voices of the uh, pain that the Iraqis were, were going through and so on and the murders and the slaughters and, right, to, to find empathy for those that you're killing rather than those of your own tribe who's being killed is really uh, that is the end of war right? that, that is the end of war, what we're doing right now is more like well we stuck our hand into a fire we got burnt and we should pull our hand back but we don 't realize that the fire is a fire we 've actually set on somebody else, right so uh, that I think is still something that has to uh, has to occur i don 't know if it 's going to happen in this cycle or not, but because whoever did it, um, if you bring that kind of truth to people, that is um, i mean that 's so radioactive it, it is such a confrontation of inhumanity to begin to broadcast the bodies of those, not just your guys, but of the other guys, that is a kind of humanity that we're still, I think, a ways away from in the media or as a species, right? That's, that is that—that is absolutely unbearable for people, not to just think, well, my son got killed, but how many people did he kill? Uh, that is really uh, the end of war, and we're still a ways away from that.
3: I don't even think you need translators for that. Uh, you know, the pictures alone, for me, uh, that that was uh, that that's a significant moment of moral horror to the point that you don't even want to believe that the pictures could possibly be real. Somebody had to fake these, right?
0: Right. Right. And and uh, the the other thing then, of course, is that um, to 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 imagine. So there's one more step, which is to imagine yourself in your enemy's your quote enemy's shoes, right? Or one foot left in the shoe, the other one blown up, right? But uh, that, that really is, it's, 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 an, it's another step, right? So, when I did the podcast on, on, I got a lot of email on the podcast I did about Iraqis and sort of the empathy that you could have for these uh, poor, suffering herd of human livestock, you know, charging back and forth across the Middle East from uh, bombs to hostile neighbors and so on. It is, um, once you get the sympathy for the uh, deranged and fear crazed herd on the other side of the electric fence, then you really can start to see the true nature of the farmers. But uh, as long as you only have sympathy for your own herd, you still have loyalty remaining to the the her- the, 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 the herders. And and, and yeah, and, and
3: th- that's that's to bring this back around to the original story. That's kind of that's kind of what I could see going on in this guy's head. You know, it, before he's you know waving the gun around and gung ho and all of that, and afterward he's you know, he's he's flat and dull and and uh, just, uh, the best way I can describe it is gray. But when you look at him, the way he talked about the stories and everything that was going on over there, you could just, you, you could almost feel the war waging inside of him. You know?
0: Well, and I think the final you, you thing that... You could tell he
3: was wrestling with that, uh, that you know, that natural human... D- desire to, to empathize with with, uh, with r- wrestling that
0: with, you know, his own government and everything that went on over there. Just, and that is the greatest just, horror for the soldier, I think, that um, when you are a soldier and you go and you stare down the beady eyes across the road and you're both trying to kill each other. I think that what you finally get, and it, probably for this guy is at a very unconscious level, but I think, Greg, that what you finally get as a soldier is that who do you have the most in common with? Do you have the most in common? You, some 22-year-old southern kid who barely finished high school, do you have uh, something in common with George Bush? No, of course not. George Bush you know, backed out of his military, basically bailed out of everything, was a drug addict and is rich and you know, has never worked an honest day in his life. So you don't have anything in common with George Bush, but that's who you went to war for, right? Do you have anything in common with the people that you come back, uh, with your wife, with your family, with the people who have not experienced the murder and the fear and the horror uh, that you have experienced? No, you don't have anything in common with them. What about your teachers? What about your co-workers? You have nothing in common with them. The person that you actually have the most in common with is, to one degree, it's your fellow soldiers, but to another degree, it's the insurgents. Those are the people that you actually have the most in common with because you're both out there and you don't know what the hell you're doing. You're both out there based on ideology and enslavement. There's to a particular ideology called Islam and yours to a particular ideology called patriotism. The, uh, the person that you're closest to is the person that you're trying to kill. And that's the person that you're told is the greatest enemy. That uniting of uh, the foes that occurs at a psychological level, which is well documented in World War One, where, of course, <laughs> right, we all know the story that when the, sorry, my voice is a little raw. We all know the story that when the, the guns went silent in 1914, everybody met and drank in the middle of no man's land because they actually had the most in common with each other. Right, they were both trying to kill each other. Um, and you're not trying to kill your fellow soldier, you're trying to kill the other guy who's trying to kill you. You actually have the most in common with your enemy. And so, where is this guy? Uh, his soul is sort of pinned to the bodies of all the people he killed who he's actually the closest to ideologically and they're supposed to be the enemies and the people he's defending are supposed to be his friends he's got nothing in common with them anymore and his soul lies pinned under a broken building in Iraq there's nothing left for him to identify with except the people he killed
3: yeah yeah that's exactly true
0: but we don't learn that until way too late right and that's that's the yeah. that's the grim danger of this right i mean it would almost be more humane if you never learned that but you don't learn that until after you've killed people
3: yeah that's true that's exactly right and i think the soldier in that sense is kind of a microcosm example of the whole society really i mean he's a he's a personification of the the Contradiction built into the whole system. Right, and right. so he, he you know, that—that—that—that that, that, uh, that self-destruction that's going on inside of him is—is is, uh, a, a, a pinpoint example of the self-destruction of the whole civilization.
0: Right, and the brutality that he wakes up to far too late from the euphoria of patriotism and everyone cheering his name to the grim blind reality of um, you know, the, the spear going into both sides, himself and whoever he's killing. The danger that he only wakes up to too late is the great danger that society as a whole, through its addiction to violence and control and hege- hegemonic monopolistic powers like the state and the church, and the brutalization that occurs with children through irrationality, patriotism, and blind obedience to parental obligation, This, the fact that the soldier only wakes up So much later, after the disaster, after the soul murder has already occurred, that, of course, is the grave danger that occurs within society, that unless we get a handle on our own addiction to violence as a means of solving problems, however prettily we dress it up, then the great danger is that we only realize the danger of this after it becomes almost impossible to remediate because the government power has become so powerful. To do anything about it. Right, and that's that's when the devil of the false self lifts the veils from your eyes, right? And that's, uh, that's the hell that, that you could face, right? I mean again, not, did we, I think we can turn this thing around, but that is of course the uh, the grave danger. Uh, somebody just had a question about this um, the Christmas time war together. I'll just mention it very briefly. Um, the war started in I think it was August of 1914, uh, Christmas time of 1914. This also occurred in Christmas time of 1915. Um, the war stopped for Christmas. <laughs> How funny is that right? So the war could stop but only for the um, misplaced birth date of Mithras. Um, but the, uh, the gun stopped, and there was brandy handed out to the troops and probably fruitcakes that are still in circulation today. And um, they, uh, <laughs> they, they knew they weren't going to shoot at each other. They knew that there was no war. So the soldiers, the British and the German soldiers, they, um, they uh, waved white, white flags, and they went out and met each other uh, in no man's land. And they shared drinks. They shared stories. They swapped cigarettes. Uh, some could speak, and they translated. But uh, they were friends because uh, th- these guys were blood brothers. They were both in the same situation, uh, and this, of course, was anathema and was heavily, heavily punished. It, it occurred in sporadically in 1915, uh, but then anybody who did it was was shot or, or imprisoned. Uh, so yeah, their own. All- yeah, they had to stop it, right? Because you you you, uh, you can't allow this kind. Of, it's, it's like the, the 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 pimp with the prostitutes. Right? You can't allow any emerging humanity. Uh, otherwise, the whole system falls to the ground. The whole system of murder and exploitation falls to the ground. So this is something that had to be highly and heavily punished. Uh, but of course, this is exactly what you'd expect. Who had the most in common were the soldiers shooting at each other. They had all been led there through their illusions. they had all been led there as well through female brutality. There was a practice um, uh, in, uh, in England and perhaps in other places as well prior to the opening of the Great War in 1914, that and also shortly thereafterwards, that women would carry um, uh, white feathers, and they would hand these white feathers, which symbolized cowardice, to any man that they found outside of uniform, and thus shaming and guilting them. They wouldn't go out with them. They spurned them, and the, the priests, of course, all spurned them and denounced them from the pulpit, and the social pressure was enormous. And uh, it's, it's a whole system that produces this kind of slaughter, uh, and it's a whole social machinery and the empathy and the camaraderie that the troops had for each other, uh, despite language barriers, despite cultural barriers, and despite the fact that they'd spent a year or two trying to kill each other, the empathy that the troops had, because that, you're actually closer to your enemy even than you are to your fellow soldiers, because your fellow soldiers aren't trying to kill you in the way that you and your enemy are trying to kill each other. The fact that you are blood brothers in the worst kind of ways, uh, that kind of empathy simply cannot be allowed to develop, or the whole structure comes crashing down. Yeah, and that- that that sort of uh um social
3: intimidation and that that goes on today too. And that's not so much in as explicit a way, but uh it was certainly the case in my own family where, you know, certain certain uh certain kids are expected to go into the army and certain aren't because they're just too you know, too soft for that sort of thing. And so they're the ones that are treated like, uh, um, you know,
0: you walk on eggshells around them, right? Explosive topic. The um, the um the, the the last thing I'll sort of say about this um, this topic is that if you've seen Fahrenheit Nine Eleven, there's this mom whose son says, "Mom, the night before he's going to ship out to Iraq, he says, Mom, I don't want to go. I think I might die. I'm terrified. I don't want to do it.'" And the mom says, sits down with him on his bed and says, well, this is the obligation you've taken on. Uh, you have to go. It's for your country. It's for this. And she basically, he's reaching out to her to save him from shark-infested waters. And she's just kicking his his uh, groping fingers off the rail, sailing on and saying, good luck, son. It's virtuous to fight these sharks. Good luck. Uh, you've got a toothpick. And then uh, he gets killed. And uh, who does she take out her rage on? Uh, the White House. Please please, as if it's got anything to do with the goddamn White House, she should have spirited him up to Canada and saved his life. But she didn't. She convinced him to go to war, shamed and humiliated, and bullied him into going to war, and then she gets angry at the politicians. The politicians are feasting off her horrifying parenting. They are merely the effects of her parenting. I
3: don't see that as bullying, right? They see that as uh, gentle counseling, right? Oh, you know this—you you have to learn to accept your responsibilities. I know it's hard, and blah blah blah, and all that—all that crap is—is—is—is is, is, is sold to you as
0: uh, um, as um, comfort. And then that's what's happening to this, this poor bastard up here who wrote what I read at the beginning, that the Canadian government is saying, hey, dude, you volunteered. We're not giving you asylum. It's like, the guy was 20. He was lied to. He's got no other opportunities. He had state propaganda his whole life. Please, please. You know, and then the reporter has the gall to say to him, hey, it's only five years if you go back to the U.S. You can only get five years in a military prison for a desertion. Why don't you just go back and take your lumps? It's like what a six-assignment Canada is considered to be this nice place, but it's no nicer than any other abandoned nut jobs in the world. Uh, this this reporter, this guy's got two kids, right? And and he's already been right. Oh, just go back and take your five years. Uh, what lunacy! What 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 horror! And what lack of respect for what this uh, this man is doing, which is I think quite remarkable. It's not going to save the world, but it's certainly going to save himself, and it's certainly going to help with his family and with his kids. So you know, good for him.
3: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, pound on a helpless kid all his life, and then the minute he tries to run away, kick him in the balls.
0: <laughs> right, go back and take your lumps. It's like, what the hell are you? You're not signing up. You're not over there doing anything, right? But this is all the courage of the people who stay at home. I right? know.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it was just pretty sick.
0: There was a great debate between uh, Michael Moore and Bill O'Reilly where Michael Moore said, would you give up your teenage son to, to, to try and free Fallujah? Would you accept the death of your teenage son? to try and free Fallujah, because that's what it comes down to. That's the reality, right? And uh, but, uh, he, said, uh, he said, no, I, I would go. I would go, but I wouldn't force my son to go. It's like, but, he said, but this is not, it's not an answer. You're too old to go, right? Would you, you know, you're, you're for this war. You think that people should be dying for it. Would you accept the sacrifice of your only son? And of course, uh, and Harry Brown had this idea, right, that you, you pass an amendment that says that nobody who doesn't have a son of draft age can vote for a war. Uh, again, it's like, Trying to turn a shark into a dolphin just gets you eaten, right? <laughs> exactly,
3: exactly. They're they're never gonna they're never gonna pass legislation like that. It's no, ridiculous. no, of
0: course not. And even if they did, they'd find some way around it or whatever. I mean, say, oh, unless you're in it's school, it's sort of a it's a symbolic gesture in an attempt to expose the hypocrisy. Right, right. Right. right the the, the troops are all perfectly aware of this, right? This is something else that happens when you get over there. And you realize that there's only other poor, uh, poor kids out there. Right? It's that great line from yeah. Charlie Sheen goes out and the, uh, the poor kids all say to him, What the hell are you doing here, rich kid? And he's like, Well, you know, I thought it was my duty as a rich kid. I don't think all the poor kids should come out and fight the war, this, that, and the other. One of the black guys and says, they laugh at him. Shit, you gotta be rich to even think like that. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of yeah. true, right? I mean, yes, it's a choice. I'm putting it's like, Hey, you know, that's great. We have no other options. At least that's what they say. That's the story. So. That
3: was the what was that apocalypse now or was that I think that the, was platoon I think that was platoon platoon yeah because that was the Charlie yeah. Gene
0: one I think okay now I just wanted to mention if anybody else had any uh, any other sort of comments or questions um, there was one question oh alchemy you know I don't really have any thoughts on alchemy somebody just had a question on alchemy of course I expected that one to come next but um, uh, the only thing that I know about alchemy is that it arose from a um, a medieval discipline which was originally the idea of transubstantiating, I think, lead to gold, that there was a way of changing the properties of a particular matter, um, a particular material substance, in order to be able to produce uh, a more valuable substance. That was the sort of root basis of alchemy, and there was a lot that was done in alchemy that ended up being useful in chemistry and biology and so on. But, um, uh, no, I don't know much about it other than that. I don't think that it's a particularly scientific pursuit. I also know that Freud was completely obsessed, sorry, Jung was completely obsessed with alchemy along with these mandelas. So uh, he felt that there was a lot of very powerful stuff in alchemy, but he was quite mad. So, uh, uh, good insights, but, but mad. So, no, I don't know much about alchemy, and I certainly haven't. Um, uh, I know that it was medieval science, mostly around the attempt. Um, you know, kings funded it in order to be able to try and find ways to produce gold without having to mine it so that they could pay soldiers to go kill people, but it never really led anywhere. And uh, it has only survived, I think, through the works of Jung into the modern age, there may be people who still practice it, but I don't know that it's particularly scientific, but I don't know much about it. So, Yeah, uh, New- Newton was also, yeah, massively big on alchemy, and, uh, you know, it was, it was the lottery of the day, right? It's like if we could just figure out a way to, to print money uh, through uh, transforming one substance into gold or silver, uh, would, would be, wouldn't we be so happy? But that's, that's really all I know about it, and, and Jung goes on and on about it, uh, and uh, it certainly made me fall asleep to Jung quite a few times, as did his discussions of mandalas, but... Uh, So um, did you have any other, uh, anyone, we've got a little bit of time, a little bit of room before um, we close the show for the week and I go back to resting my voice. Uh, If anybody has any questions or comments, you can click on um, uh, request microphone. Thoughts on Jung for that matter? Well, uh, I can speak very briefly uh, about Jung. I went through a bit of a Jung kick um, when I was about 30, 31. Uh, Jung uh, himself, of course, was a highly deranged human being and an untreated uh, victim of sexual abuse. He was raped by a friend of his father's, uh, as, uh, uh, as Freud himself was an uh, uh, untreated victim of sexual abuse. Untreated, of course, because it was new. So uh, Jung uh, had um, <clears throat> some particularly challenging emotional issues. If you're raised by somebody whose friend uh, rapes your child, uh, you've got a pretty corrupt family uh, overall, of course that 's not particularly positive. Uh, Jung himself was obviously very big into metaphor, very big into collective unconscious. Uh, I remember reading that he, when he was um, starting out uh, he um, he met somebody in a psych ward who was talking about how the sun had a penis that made the wind, believe it or not, and he found this to be very powerful and he found some Aztec myth or some native Indian myth where the sun had a penis that made the wind, and he felt that this was some massive breakthrough. And I think that's all very interesting. Uh, I think that he might have been a little bit better off to look in the mirror and say, how did it feel to get raped by a friend of my father's? That might have been slightly more productive from a mental health standpoint to do that rather than to worry about uh, possible coincidental myths that occurred. But he did, um, he did have some great respect for the um, The instincts and the passions he also was quite skeptical towards um, uh, towards parents. I remember when I was on vacation once uh, on my own in Mexico. I think it was. Uh, I was reading that uh, I remember this sentence vividly to this day, something about parents. He wrote very passionately about the evils of the of the wars and he did quite a lot of analysis on Nazism from a psychological standpoint, but he wrote, and it really struck with me he wrote. But of course, most parents are just ordinary, or uh, a little more than ordinary incompetence. Far more than half children themselves, and that was very powerful for me, right? Because it really began to sort of really reinforce this journey that I was on towards the scepticism towards parental authority. That, of course, everybody knows where uh, where that um, uh, where that uh, where that went. Uh, Freud's and, and his treatment of his own children, of course, was brutal. And something that struck me about Freud as well was uh, sorry, Jung was that Jung went on this um, pilgrimage later on in life to go into the heart of darkness, into darkest Africa, because he wanted to do X, Y, Z, some nonsense and whatever. And I remember, this is a little detail from, I read his biography, but I remember that he goes on this journey and a couple of his uh, Zulu or African guides get eaten by lions um, during the course of this trip. And he just comments it and and moves on. But of course, these people, these men would still be alive if he hadn't gone on this trip or if he'd armed them. Of course, they didn't like arming blacks in those days. But uh, he's just like, you know, well, this is the hazards of whatever, whatever, right? And this incredible coldness towards other human beings, uh, to me, is always just very, very chilling uh, when it comes to psychologizing uh, people. Uh, He was, of course, very big into um, the authentic self, the true self, and so on, but it was a bit more mystical than I would put it, right? To me, the true self is that which accurately mirrors empirical external reality as provided through the evidence of the senses, but for him, it was a mystical union with uh, sort of the collective unconscious and the the images of human beings and so on, but his, uh, his dream analysis could be quite good, so... The way that that these, um, the way that uh, Freud and Jung and a lot of, this is not uncommon, uh, the the way that they treated their own children could be pretty brutal. The way that they treated um, their their child patients could be quite brutal. And uh, of course, the fundamental thing that occurred was the denial of the pain of the child through the uh, transmogrification of the agony of the child into a universal theory of psychology was the greatest crime, sort of in my opinion, right? So. Jung translated the, um, the agonies of the child into the collective unconscious, and Freud translated it into the uh, Electra and the eatable complex and the sort of tripartite analysis of the human soul, which has the, the superego, the ego, and the id, with the ego being the least powerful part of consciousness. But um, the, the failure of their, uh, the failure of their uh, ability or desire or willingness to accept the agonies of the child uh, and the real horrors and agonies that were going on were I think pretty significant. Uh, one of Jung's case studies involved a girl who was uh, uh, preyed upon by an elderly uh, uncle who wanted to marry her later, and she was, uh, you know, appalled and would faint and had all of these psychosomatic symptoms, which any competent therapist or even any competent human being who had empathy would recognize as the signs of significant abuse, uh, probably perpetrated in a sexual manner uh, by the very person who wanted to marry her. But, of course, he put it down as sexual hysteria and repression and this and that, uh, all of which is non-empirical, and I think that uh, that put society back quite a long way. Because, of course, what happened with Freud, as I mentioned a long time ago in podcasts, is that all these women were coming to him saying, yeah, I'm screwed up because I was raped as a child. I screwed up because my dad buggered me as a kid, both boys and girls. And Freud began to publish this um, sexual ideology of uh, what was occurring to children, and society went apeshit, society went completely insane. Right, because it 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 violated so many things, uh, so many taboos within society. This, this sort of honesty, and so what he did was, uh, when he faced this kind of resistance, what he did was he said, "Oh, okay, well maybe it's not true. Maybe they're making it all up. Maybe maybe right, maybe maybe the uh, maybe the kids weren't being raped. Maybe the daughters aren't being raped by their fathers. They're just fantasizing about being raped by their fathers, and that is uh, something that." Uh, is is a fantasy that they have, so they must want to be raped by their fathers they 're dreaming it kids can 't tell reality from fantasy and this is where of course, you still get this idea that kids don't can 't tell reality from fantasy, which is not true at all. but the dismissal of the highly legitimate complaints, particularly by women of childhood rape but also by men um, was uh, was pretty horrendous of course and and uh, of course uh, Freud was a heavy collectivist in terms of his uh, addiction to Judaism. He was a Jew, of course, and and uh, was very pro-Jewish uh, and so on, and really wanted to keep those collective identities. And Jung was very pro-collectivism and so on. So um, I'd say pretty primitive thinkers, um, not very honest people, uh, not very rigorous within themselves. They had the priest's ability to make up convenient answers to explain situations that were occurring. And by the by, Freud was an incredibly incompetent physician who probably would have been sued into oblivion within about a year or two of starting his practice. So, Yeah, Freud could have equivocated because as an untreated victim of sexual abuse himself, the odds of him abusing his own daughter was, was, were quite high. It certainly would be far higher than on average. So yeah, absolutely, he could have equivocated because of his own actions, we don't know. But um, I still think that the, you know, to give credit where credit is due, the discovery of the unconscious the dreams being the royal road to the unconscious, as Freud talked about, the discovery of individuation and the, um, the, the power and the value of myth, the myth-building uh, apparatus within consciousness, was good. I mean, there's, there's a few silver linings in these clouds, but uh, overall I think they did quite a bit of harm to the development of people's understandings uh, of the world by uh, saying that the, the human uh, psyche was innately ir- irrational, which, of course, I don't think is the case. It gets bludgeoned into being irrational, but if you keep throwing um, boxes, wooden boxes off a cliff, you say that uh, wood never seems to take the shape of a box when you're looking at the splinters at the bottom. But uh, that's not particularly good in terms of cause and effect, I think. All right. But yeah, absolutely, they're well worth reading. I mean, they're, they're, very, they're both very good writers. Freud, in particular, is an excellent writer. They're well worth reading. Um, sorry? Boring. Yeah, some people do find them very boring, for sure. Yeah, I know that Christina was not a big uh, Freud fan. Um, They're very interesting to read. It's very interesting to read for me, at least where uh, the human mind was back then, um, and where people's understanding of psychology and and personality and so on was back then. But um, it's it's far more akin to religion than it is to science. Uh, So (coughs) that's sort of my thoughts. All right. (coughs) Excuse me. Do we have any other questions that uh, people would like to uh, chew their way into before we close the show for this week? What kind of webcam did you get? Uh, actually, I didn't get a new webcam. I just wanted to make a joke about dancing naked, but the seven veils and the resulting viewer blindness. So, no, I didn't actually get a new webcam. So, <laughs> you know, um, it's the only time I've ever bent the truth in this show. So I just wanted to let you know that. Embellished. That's right. So, um all right. Oh, wait. That seemed to be – that made uh, – ha! I got you. Well, you know, that's – uh Let's just say that it was going to happen sooner or later. You know, after, you know, I was wondering how many hours of podcasts are there? There's got to be 500 hours of podcasts by now. I can't believe people are having trouble catching up. It's laziness, really. I mean, it's just, just sheer laziness. I mean, what, what, sleep, showering? Come on. All right. So, uh, if nobody has any other questions, then I think we'll close the show down for this week. Thank you so much as always for listening. Uh, and, uh, except for those who've donated, I'll put out a quick nag for those, Um, who have not donated, that uh, kick in a few shekels. I think it'll make you feel great. I would certainly appreciate it. Uh, It's been a little dry this week, but uh, I would certainly appreciate a couple, but not for the people who've already donated, who've been very generous, but um, let's get some new cash, some new blood in. Uh, I would really appreciate that. And, uh, uh, of course, the goal is for me to be able to move this to a full-time occupation so that I can keep the uh, Steph uh, 24-7 cable show going, which, according to my business plan and with enough amphetamines, I can probably keep going for about eight or nine days, uh, before um, losing my mind. So uh, thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you soon. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. And uh, I will be a little bit light on podcasting this week for a variety of reasons. But uh, I will be sure to pick it up relatively quickly. And thank you so much for listening as always.